Good morning, everybody. It is the 22nd of September 2013, which is most important because it is T minus two days. T <laughs> or B, really, B minus. Birthday minus two days. On Tuesday, I will be 47 years old. And that is um, kind of mind-blowing. Uh, I am now, what is that? Not really. Yeah, I guess halfway through next year, I'll be close. I'll be tipping towards 50 rather than 45. And uh, still don't feel a whole lot older than about 12 and a half. Um, <laughs> physically, that's really what I'm working with. So hope you're having a wonderful week, everyone. I know we got a lot of callers today. Um, and um, uh, thanks to those who express interest uh, in hearing uh, the Joe Rogan interview, which was really a, a fantastic amount of fun. And... Um, uh, it's going to be out soon. They have the better audio. We have a backup recording. They have the better audio. We're going to wait for them. And video. Don't forget about yeah, that. Yeah, we have video as well, so we're going to be putting that together. But we want to do that with their better audio. So we'll be putting that together. And um, thanks again to Joe for inviting me to the UFC. Last night it was very, uh, I guess, brave of him to invite me into the ring. Um, really? The fact that I'm calling it a ring rather than an octagon does that. Does that indicate the truthfulness of that particular narrative? Yeah, it probably does. Anyway, so it was really yeah, it was a lot of fun. And um, tomorrow, Peter Joseph and I will be um, debating the merits of a resource-based economy. I think we share a lot of criticisms of contemporary culture. And um, our solutions are probably quite different in that I don't really have a solution other than let's stop pointing guns. But it will be certainly interesting to have a chat. So with that said, let's move on to the callers. All right, first person via phone is Josh. Let's add him in. Hey, good morning, Ms. Molly. Hello, hello, how are you doing? Excellent, excellent. Um, I, I was just uh, calling to see if I could get a, uh, a couple answers uh, to my questions. Go for it. Hello? Yes, go ahead. All right, um, my first question was uh, I'm actually uh, writing a piece. And uh, I was just wondering if uh, you, as a uh, very successful author, had any uh, insight on ways to uh, to uh, keep my my ideas straight. Um, I have no problem getting it uh, my ideas on the paper. It's just uh, it gets all jumbled up. I mean, uh, is there any like organizational methods that you know of um, that you could uh, pass my way? And is it is a is it a book length or is it an article length or what what are you writing? Um, I'm actually attempting a book. Um, it is my uh, my my uh, first one. Um, I've, I've tried it before, but I actually started over like three times. So uh, hoping to uh, get a little farther this time, if not finish. Mm. And why do you want to write a book? Well, quite frankly, uh, mostly uh, I just I find it highly uh, therapeutic to write, uh, but also uh, I find that the best way to learn is to teach. Um, so, um, I mean, also it it has a lot to do with uh, keeping myself sharp. I mean, uh, I feel like a bit of an island out here, um, just due to what I I do. Um, it's just. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of uh, contact with uh, what I like to uh, read and write about. So, in essence, I guess it's just a way to keep in touch with uh, ideas and, uh, I guess, disseminate them to the world. 
Yeah, I mean, because there's, there's two different things that you're talking about, which is sort of important, right? Before before you can figure out how to organize something, I think you need to know what the purpose of it is, right? And what I would suggest is if you're talking about writing, you know, to keep yourself sharp, to organize your thoughts, because you find it therapeutic, then what you're really talking about is journaling, right? And journaling by its very nature does not uh, need to be negative. organized. Go ahead. But that's what you said. I mean, that's what you said. Part of it was a significant portion yes, of it yes. before. It, and to I, keep I yourself mean, sharp. I uh, mean therapeutic right? in the sense that it's, uh, it, it's relaxing. It's just something that I do for, uh, for entertainment. I mean, some people, they fish. Some people, they hunt. Some people, they, uh, I don't know, they, they go skiing, sledding, whatever. I, I like to write. Right, but that but, but what I mean by that is it's a hobby, right? I would suppose so. Well, am I am I am I wrong? I mean, if if it's for you, then it's 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 not really a book; it's a journal. Not necessarily. Go ahead. I mean, if if it's not for if well, it's not written with the specific intention of other people to read it for their edification or education, then it would be a, it would be. I mean, you might call it a book or whatever, but it's not written for the consumption of others, right? No, I, I would digress. Um, my my last point that I put out there, I think I put four out there, um, is for information dissemination. Uh, I want people to to uh, I guess come in contact with. Uh, with ideas. Okay, well, but but see, I mean, so if if and the reason I'm asking this question is if your book is for other people to learn something, then your comfort, your therapeutic, your whatever doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is does it work in terms of other people consuming it. Does it connect with them? Does it does it educate them? Does it work from the right? So let me sort of give you an example. So if I say, well, I paint pictures because it relaxes me and I enjoy it, and so on, right? Then I don't have to worry about what people want to buy or or where to sell it or what they're going to look for or anything like that. I'm just going to go and and paint, and that's that's kind of it. It's just a hobby for me, right? And then some people, and then if people say, sure. Um, if I say, well, what should I paint or how should I paint? I'd say, well, no, it's your hobby. I mean, paint whatever makes you feel happy. But if you were to say, well, I paint because I want to hang my pictures in an art gallery and sell them, then that's a different matter entirely, right? Yes, I, I see your point. Though. Right. So, so if you are, if you are focusing on a book that you want other people to consume and you want them to pay you for mm -hmm. it. You know, I'm kind of divided by that. I mean, I really, really like the idea of information dissemination. I mean, algorithm, uh, I guess, in its purest form is an absolutely wonderful idea to me. But, uh, I mean, I'm, ideally, just like anyone, I, I like money. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, so yeah. If anything, like I, think, sure. I think I would probably, most likely, I would probably release it. Um for cheap, probably in a digital format. Right. And the reason that I ask that question is if you are writing so that other people will read it, then the important yeah. thing is that they read it, right? And, and that they finish it and so on. And the best way to 
get someone to read and finish a book is to have them pay for it up front because then they've already sunk some investment into it and then they're going to to finish it. Now, I mean, I'm fully aware that I don't release my books that way. Well, I do in hardcover, but that's not how I release my books. So we'll, we'll talk about that if you're, if you're even remotely interested sort of later on. But price is the, price is the test of interest, right? When you give stuff away for free, I mean, people will take it, right? You go to the supermarket, they have those little samples of like weenies and spicy cheeses and Greek yogurt and stuff like that. And you'll probably have some if you're, you know, feeling kind of snacky. But whether you're actually going to become a regular buyer of the wieners or the spicy cheese or the Greek yogurt is, you know, probably an entirely different matter. Like 99 people probably try that stuff for every one person who becomes a regular buyer of it. So releasing stuff for money is um, important because it tells you whether or not people are actually inter actually interested as opposed to, well, here's a free ebook. I'll download it. Maybe I'll read it someday doesn't tell you whether your work has value. And so that is, uh, th that is sort of my suggestion. Now, if you're going to work for uh, other people to read, that you want other people to read, then you have to put aside your therapy, your comfort, your relaxation, your whatever, and focus entirely on the audience experience, which means you have to write with the idea, like when you journal, you, you, you you don't have to worry about whether other people know X, Y, or Z before, like if they come and read your journal, right? Because it's for you. But if you're writing something for the general public or maybe for a specific audience, but let's just say the general public, if you're writing something for the general public, then you have to assume that they know nothing about what it is that you're doing, right? So when I wrote Everyday Anarchy, which is a, a sort of introduction to voluntarism for the general public, I assumed that they knew nothing about it. And I had to do every analogy that I put into that had to relate to something that the audience already knows. Now, I don't need to write. I don't need to write a book introducing anarchism or voluntarism to myself, and I don't need to say, "Well, I guess, I guess voluntarism is kind of like X or Y or Z or whatever," right? Because I mean, I already know what it is. But for the every everyday audience, you kind of have to assume no knowledge. You have to build the knowledge box slowly in an enjoyable way. You have to always connect a new concept to something they already understand as a way of hooking into an existing knowledge base that they have. And so like everybody knows that the government takes money from lobbyists and in return is more likely to give favorable legislation and that those contracts can't be enforced because they're actually not legal. You can't specifically do that. And so m making the case that this is an argument as to how we don't need the government to enforce contracts because the government runs on unenforceable contracts, well, that's um, – that's a way of, of helping people to understand the validity of where we're coming from, helping people to understand that it doesn't matter how things are done in a free society. It only matters that we follow the moral principles that we all inflict on kids and each other and all that, which is, you know, don't hit, don't steal, and so on. So if you're writing for the general public, it has to be entirely around their edification. And that's sort of why I wanted to, to untangle what's for you and what's for them. Now, you will get pleasure, of course. I'm not saying be selfless. You will get pleasure, but you will get pleasure to the degree that people find your work valuable and illuminating and so on, right? Like somebody posted on my YouTube channel the other day um, that they were 15 when they read Everyday Anarchy and their life has never been the same. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. I get those emails all the time. I, I, just by chance, I happen to click on one of your videos and now I've watched you know, hundreds and I mean, my mind is blown and my life has changed and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I measure that in terms of donations have something to do with that.
because donations are a measure of how impactful what I'm doing is. And if if everyone sent me those emails but nobody sent me any money, then I would get that my show was not having an impact because my show is about acting with integrity and exchanging value for value and uh, and so on. And so that's I, – I know that people are getting it. Uh, if they if they consume a lot of my stuff and then they send me some money, I know that it's actually having a tangible effect on – you know. whereas if you, if you write a book about how the Federal Reserve is bad and then you know people don't send you money and maybe a bunch of people download it, but how on earth are you going to measure whether it's actually changing anybody's actions or choices? I guess if you hold a huge rally and a whole bunch of people come based on the book, that would be one thing, but that's not particularly likely. So – so anyway, I just so I just wanted to point out that you really, really need to focus on the audience, and and to do that, you have to uh, figure out what who your audience is. Are you writing for the general public? Are you writing for more specific audiences? Right. So everyday anarchy is an introduction that people can hand around. It's short. It's non-technical. I hope it's somewhat entertaining. And then uh, practical anarchy is generally designed to be read after everyday anarchy so that you don't have to make the case for anarchy as a whole, but you can talk about how it might be implemented in a free society. So actually, you can't really implement anarchy, but but you know what I mean. So you have to have an idea before you figure out what's in your book and how to organize it. You have to know who your target audience is. So let me throw that question over to you. So who is the target audience? You know, age, demographics, level of education, level of income, level of leisure time, and all that kind of stuff. Who are you looking to, to target with your work? Well, quite frankly, uh, the general public, but the problem I have is that uh, the things that I, I really write about, uh, I, I think it would fall most closely under the, uh, I, I guess, the canopy of uh, uh, political science or philosophy. But um, the problem that I'm running into is that uh, the ideas that I'm trying to express, it's almost like I, uh, I either have to uh, go with the an established vocabulary to convey these ideas accurately that I, I want to put out there. But that in itself, I think, would uh, would alienate a lot of people because uh, it, it's just, it turns out to be, I wouldn't say highly technical, but you, you definitely have to know your way around, uh, around certain subjects. And uh, <clears throat> if I, if I go with that, I mean, like I said, it will alienate a lot of people, but then if I, uh, if I, I guess, uh, establish my own vocabulary. Um, it be, I, I'm afraid it'll become like so ridiculously, like ridiculous that no one is really, really going to want to read it unless they're a stuffy man smoking a cigar and drinking sherry. I mean, it's just... Well, at least those guys can afford a, the books. So. It's almost like a lose-lose. What was that? You know, nothing. Well, okay, so then, then you have a challenge, and, and it's an interesting challenge, which is you want to convey new ideas to people, and you don't want to use existing terms or words because they have the opposite meaning, right? Yeah, I was just going to say it's not necessarily the opposite meaning. It's just uh, highly technical. I mean, it's sort of like that uh, that whole thing with law. I mean, uh People they uh, they assume they know what it is, but uh, once you look in like if you pick up like let's say a uh, black law dictionary, it's like your entire vocabulary is turned upside down, and things mean uh, really something else. I mean it's it's kind of one of those situations. That a lot of these things have highly 
highly, uh, I guess, uh, technical definition that is not necessarily your normal usage. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't really get what you mean when you say they all have technical descriptions. There's always a simpler word for you know for things, right? You don't say, "Hey, look, I just saw a carcarodon car carcarius." It's like, "Whoa, that was a big great white shark," or something like. There's always simpler ways to do it, and. So, you know, like, so the reason I called it everyday anarchy and practical anarchy is because what do people think that anarchy is? Is some remote crazy thing that's completely impractical, right? So, no, it's everyday. It's not remote. It's something you live every day and it's practical, right? So, so that's like practical anarchy is like uh, egalitarian racism. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make sense to people and hopefully it, it's curious. And there's tons of things that you can do that's technical with regards to political science. But so what? I mean, your challenge then is to find a way to communicate your ideas in, um, you know, intelligent lay people's terms. And it's been done by tons of people before. I mean, look at John Locke's second treatise on government. Look at Plato's uh, Republic and uh, the works of, of Aristotle and, and, and Hobbes. These were all non-technical books with great language that were consumable by the educated public. So, I mean, it's been done by millions of people before. You just you have to find a way to connect and interest people in the, what you're doing, uh, the idea that these terms are too technical, well, there's always a better word to use or a more accessible word to use for whatever it is you're talking about. So again, that's the challenge is forget the technical. And of course, the whole point is not to look, you, you shouldn't, I mean, I'm not saying you would, but, but the whole point is of writing about challenging topics or philosophical topics to a general audience is you don't want to look smart, right? And th there's a temptation, right? Right. So I, when I was doing the Joe uh, Rogan show on, um, on Friday night, I started drifting off into a couple of technical philosophical terms and to catch myself, it's not, it's not the audience's expertise or, or so I was like, oh, sorry, that's just like, that's just bullshit technical stuff uh, and go back to finding a way to connect to where the audience is. And the whole point is to make the reader feel smart, right? Not to show how, you know, like when I was in theater school, we, we always, oh, if I can cry on stage, then I'm a really great actor and all the experienced directors call bullshit on that. So it doesn't matter if you're crying on stage, what matters is the audience is crying, right? <laughs> so if you're focusing on you rather than the fact that you're acting for an audience, then you're missing the connection with the audience that will actually transmit the emotion. So it's all about making the audience cry. It's all about making the audience think. It's all about making the audience feel smart and curious and challenged. And it doesn't have anything to do with your technical terms or anything like that. It's just about what you can evoke or stimulate in the audience. Yes. Now, that, once you uh, have that, makes sorry, go ahead. Sense. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So once you no, have I that, was, I was finished. Oh yeah. So, so once you have that, you have an idea of who your audience is going to be. Let's say in general, you're going to be trying to reach uh, men. Well, men are going to respond to different kinds of writing in general than women are. It doesn't mean that it's 100%, blah, 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 but there is, um, if you look at the writing in Maxim versus the writing in Cosmopolitan, um, you know, I guess they're both talking about orgasms, but from slightly different perspectives. <laughs> but um, there is, so let's say you're, you're trying to, to reach men who are in their 20s, who are college educated, who are unfamiliar with your particular view or your particular set of arguments then the first thing you need to do is, is figure out what they believe already, right? So, so what knowledge base are they coming from? So, of course, if you know anyone who's in the category that you're trying to reach, then go talk to them or go read the kinds of magazines or the kinds of books that they read. 
right? So, so Ben Shapiro is a writer who's really uh, enjoyable, and he writes for this particular age group. He writes for a college uh, teen, uh, sorry, like really smart teens or, or college-educated twenties, largely men. And so you can pick up a bunch of his books and read, and he's you know done a lot of research, and you can sort of follow his lead about what people know and what they don't. And you can go to websites that are frequented by this demographic and figure out what their knowledge base is, talk to people, and so on. So you need to get to understand who your audience is. It's why I didn't start off with books. I started off with articles and podcasts, which I did for several years before starting to write books. The reason being that I needed to really understand the audience before I started firing books at them uh, or at other people. Uh, and so... So that was sort of uh, important to me. So you, you get to know your demographic and get to know what they know, what they don't know, what they're interested in, what they're not, which analogies are going to work for them, right? I mean, I think that's that's really important, right? I, I remember making a reference to a video game, I think the top video game player in the world who's, I can't remember his real name, but his, his screen name is Fatality. And uh, I made a fatality reference in some podcast. Like I got, I don't know, tons of emails from younger listeners like, wow, I can't believe you know who fatality is. You know, like it connects because that's a reference that they uh, they understand, which is why, uh, you know, I'm taking up uh, uh, skateboarding and body surfing at uh, corn concerts. No, I missed my references completely. I probably did. Anyway, but uh, and, and uh, you know, really getting into Josh Groban. Uh, just so that we can really connect at that crooner level. <laughs> you don't even know who Josh Groban is, do you? No, Mike, Mike is my reference no to what? <laughs> Josh Groban? Oh, man, if you know who Josh Groban is, you won't get the corn reference and vice versa. <laughs> he's um, uh, he's a dewy-eyed Canadian singer who sang with Celine Dion. And uh, he's, uh, he's a good crooner. A uh, very good singer, actually. Um, and anyway, uh, so uh, Michael Bublé? Bubbly? No? All right, anyway. So, um, so yeah, you just get to know the references so that you can connect with the audience and all that kind of stuff. And uh, now once you know who the audience is and what their reference set is and what their lexical set is and all that kind of stuff, then you can begin planning your book, right? It's all ready, aim, 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 pull the trigger, hit the target, right? And so it's, it's a lot of research. It's a lot of talking to people. It's a lot of figuring things out that you're probably not particularly – I mean if you're writing for your own age group and your own set and all that, then of course a lot of this stuff is done for you. But – Generally, it's if you're looking to, to communicate ideas, then trying to talk to people who are younger is usually slightly better, you know. And I apologize to all the people who are in their 60s who've changed their mind based on what I'm saying, who are now going to email me and say, hey, but, but, but. Absolutely, it's true, and it certainly is true that some people in their teens buy, buy Viagra, but you just don't see them in the commercials, right? So, yes. so yeah, it's it's just all about research, and then once you know you know, what your message is, how you're going to communicate it, who your target audience is, and so on. Then you just start building your chapter titles, right? The best way to organize a book is through uh, chapter titles, right? Just this chapter is this. And then, you know, like give yourself no more than two sentences to describe the chapter. And then you can see if it builds nicely. And then you can give it to people to review, you know, without the content of the argument. Does this way of putting forward the argument make sense? And you can reorganize it based on their feedback and so on. And then you write, you know, a couple of paragraphs about each chapter, and then you give that out to people who've agreed to review your book or hire an editor. I mean, that's a really important thing to do. If you're new to the writing gig, um, hire an editor, uh, you know, be serious about it. Writing a book is, um, you know, people don't just sort of stumble into it. I mean, I must have written before on truth, I probably wrote six or seven books. And I did have, 
um, a professional editor and uh, I had a writing teacher. I had several writing teachers. I went to theater school. I studied writing. Um, I wrote creatively in university and got feedback. I wrote plays and got audience feedback. I had done a ton of writing with some significant audience and professional and editor review before I started writing for Free Domain Radio. People uh, like writing a book is, is is a big professional task and lots of people have ideas and lots of people write, you know, good and entertaining emails and articles and so on. Writing a book is just, I mean, you, you, you just don't wander into it. Don't think it's just something you can sort of pick up and do. Uh, it's hard and it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of training. Like I don't sit there and say, well, I think, you know, I, I've always enjoyed listening to music. So I think I'm going to go write a piano concerto and play it. Um, well, no, I mean, there's a respect for composing that it takes a lot of training and practice and there's respect for playing piano it takes a lot of training and practice particularly to the point where you want people to pay for your piano playing or your composing and so you know my my touchstone of creativity the band queen i uh, spent years uh, practicing really before they started doing any live gig gigs and they spent 10 years floundering around you know they had an album or two before they started to really hit it big uh, the Beatles, of course, uh, as Malcolm Gladwell has pointed out, you know, did 10,000 hours of live playing before they even started to have any of their big hits because they did, what, a year or two in Germany where they were playing like six, seven, eight hours a day. And so don't assume that you can just sit down and, and just start writing a book and somehow it's going gonna, it's gonna to come off. It's, um, it's a complex and challenging work that involves a good deal of skill. I would involve involves a good deal of professional feedback, and uh, you you can you can do it, of course. But I think have respect for the amount of feedback, uh, and research, and audience understanding that you're going to need to put in place before you just start sitting down uh, to to write. Does that does that make any sense? Oh, definitely. Good. Well, look at that. Knocked one out of the park within the first few minutes. <laughs> Um, so, Mike, if we can move on to the next call, I would really appreciate that. Good luck. Good luck with your book. All right, Anthony, you're up next. Hey, Steph, how are you? I am very well. Oh, friend of mine who works in a grocery store, saving his pennies for some days. <laughs> yeah, good time to be talking about piano and um, Queen's early stuff. I was just uh, arranging, making an arrangement of My Fairy King from the first album. Do you know it? Oh, do I know it? The fairy folk now gathered oh. around the moonshine. Uh, is that the one? Oh. oh no, that's is that the one? Oh, no, anyway, but yeah, it's he's a uh, he, it's great composition and the amount of work they put into the early stuff has been fantastic. Yeah, the man had a also... Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you know, he actually he composed that song. Uh, he composed that song by looking at a tapestry. I don't remember the name of it, but you can Google it. He composed that song, and actually everything that's in the song describes something that's on a medieval tapestry. Anyway, I just want to point that out. Oh, anyway, so, so um, what's on your mind? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on coming to the end of your chemo. Um, I hope that we can all see that behind you for, for the rest Thanks. of time. Yeah, I finished chemo, and I finished the radiation treatment as well. So uh, I, am, uh, I am pleased, and yeah, my voice is uh, starting to come back. Uh, slowly, which is uh, nice, uh, getting a bit of the old flexibility back and all that. Because, you know, when you talk for a living, and I noticed this in seeing the comedians, uh, Joe Rogan and a couple other guys, that, you know, whether you're a singer or not, if you're on stage or you're any kind of public communicator, your voice is kind of like an instrument. And uh, they were, you know, they obviously has, uh, Joe Rogan has a great uh, voice, very flexible, uh, very able to take on characters and personas. And I'm sure he's worked on developing that and all. But I sure have missed the flexibility of 
the voice for what it is that I do. So I'm, I'm glad I'm glad to be getting it back. But uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay, great. So I moved to Edinburgh to finish my postgraduate studies in counselling. And uh, part of the reason why I'm doing it is obviously to learn some new skills and get qualifications. So I've got the option of working as a counsellor if I want to. But the main reason is to sort of give me a bit more credibility in what I've been doing on the side of teaching piano over the last couple of years and um, in the self-help field. And I've been expanding that. So now that I've moved and I've got settled down, I'm looking to launch my business more formally. And I was wondering if you could maybe advise me on like what you think are the top tips and best ways to advertise and things like that. Now, do you mean you're starting your business in uh, teaching piano? And no, I've been doing that for several years, but over the last few years, I've been moving into self-help. And uh, most of what I've been doing is like teaching the stuff that I found really helped me the most. So like good communication skills. Um, and I've also done a bit of inner child work, as you have to call it, because, you know, you don't want to get busted for calling yourself a counsellor or a therapist when you've um, not got your life qualifications. Coach. Kind, kind of. Life coaches mostly just ask people questions. Um, I, I do that a lot, a lot of listening, a lot of reflecting back what I hear and when people are ready for approaches. I speak to them more about whatever I have to offer them. Like, um, mostly, you know, stuff like how to assert yourself well, how to listen empathetically, you know, how to say no, how to resolve conflicts how to resolve them before they start and things like that. They're the things that I felt learning really, you know, instantly improved my life just like that. So I think they're the most important thing because, I, you know, I was bumbling about for about seven years uh, trying to figure out how to be happy before I started stumbling across stuff that really helped me. So I'm just trying to give people that shortcut. I've got some really good testimonials but um, I did a lot of pro bono work, um, especially for friends and friends of friends at the beginning, to, uh, which was great, you know, good practice. And then I ran some workshops and things, but it's hard to get the word out to the right audience. I mean, I've not tried putting an advertisement in a paper or anything yet, but that might be an idea. Yeah, I mean, as far as... As far as advertising goes, I've not found it to be particularly helpful. I, I've tried a variety of advertising strategies early on, and uh, what I have found to be the case, and I don't know if this is the case for everyone, but for me, is to uh, to to give out as much as possible in, in the hopes of converting it to an income. And that's not my any kind of genius novel, like it's not any kind of genius insight from my standpoint, because I mean that is a uh, that is a fairly common. Uh, thing it's a fairly common reality, but if you write uh, articles and you write uh, books and uh, all that kind of stuff and give it out for free, uh, then there will be some interest. Now, of course, the tough part is how do you get people to read whatever it is that you put, whatever it is you create, and what you do, of course, is you find uh, websites with large traffic in the area and you ask if you can be a columnist, right? You ask if you can provide um, a resource for them, 
right? So if you're a men's rights guy, then you go to a voice for men or, or other things like that. Uh, if you um, if you find that you have uh, – if there are experts in the field that you really like, you offer to interview them and then you publish the interviews and likely they'll publish the interviews so people will get a chance to see what you do from their standpoint and all that. So uh, I would argue that it's really, um, it's really important to just try your very best to uh, get your work into, into the kind of audience of people whose work you like and um, – from there, uh, I think you'll gain credibility, and you don't gain gain credibility by just interviewing somebody intelligent or famous or or well read or an author or something. You you get the the credibility by actually engaging with them with sort of intelligent back and forth and that kind of stuff. And so that that would be my suggestion, at least sort of as how to start. And that way, you get your work and your name in front of uh, people, and then if they are interested in what you have to offer. Then I think you are, uh, you know, that much, uh, that much further ahead. Does that, does that help at all? Well, I love the idea of um, trying to be a columnist because I was thinking of doing some of what you'd said, like maybe putting a, putting up a YouTube channel with short, sharp self-help videos and maybe writing a blog. But the idea of seeing if there's somewhere where I can submit the work sounds like a good idea. I am working on a couple of books at the moment as well, so. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my start was, sorry to interrupt, but my start was, I mean, I, I had a blog and stuff like that, but I mean, who cared, right? I mean, everyone and their dog had a blog. But once I started submitting to Lou Rockwell and Strike the Root and other places, um, then I started to get some more traction. Uh, and so, yeah, just do a search for whatever you're interested in and find the top sites, you know, read their, read their stuff, figure out their style, uh, try and write something similar or something that's going to be of use to them. And then... Um, to submit and, and just try and get get all that kind of stuff going. Okay, great. Um, well, if anyone out there in FDR land would like to check it out, um, I did do consultations on Skype. Um, the, the website's just gone up. It's www.enrichyourlife.co .co? .co. That's all. Yeah. All right. And uh, we, we appreciate that. Of course, in the video, we will be, we will be providing train spotting style subtitles for the Brogue, uh, just so people can follow. I can follow, but, you know, yeah, <laughs> I've had some exposure uh, to it before. But best of luck. And, of course, uh, yeah, please uh, please check out the website. And um, uh, you can uh, – the other thing, too, of course, is, is you can email people who've done what you want to do and ask them – for you know, twenty minutes of their time, pick their brains. Uh, you can offer to pay them for their time. Pick their brains. You know, how did you get to where you are? How did you figure it out? And and you know, what steps did you take that were valuable? What steps did you take that weren't valuable? You know, you, you don't want to reinvent the wheel if at all humanly possible. So I would uh, strongly suggest um, that kind of stuff. Uh, just you know, a lot of people who are self-starters, they think they want to do it alone. A lot of people who are, are entrepreneurially inclined don't really want to ask people for help. And um, I think really the, the difference between success and failure in so many areas is getting the right information and not having to thrash around and invent. You know, you, you know if, you, if you want to um, lose weight, you don't just, I think, randomly start changing your diet and see what happens. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of science and a lot of work has gone into diets already. And so, you know, if you, if you want to learn how to 
bulk yourself up. You don't just start grabbing things and lifting them, right? I mean, you you get a personal trainer, you figure out, you read books. You know, it's this stuff that's been done before. And uh, entrepreneurs generally like to think that they can, uh, you know, build the car from scratch with themselves by digging for iron under their house. And uh, I think go go ask for help and uh, you. Know, you know, leverage the knowledge base that other people have already hard won themselves and leverage other people's success for mutual gain by being on popular websites and all that. And I think I think that's the best way I would suggest. I'm not inimical to that at all. I mean, I want to go around and do, of course, uh, all the courses in the world. I've already spent hundreds of hours reading and researching and practicing what I teach anyway. So I've really internalized it, which is great because you can ask quick, you can answer questions. Whereas if you've just read it in a book, then you can only parrot what you've learned. If you've lived it, then you, then you know how how to teach it. And I feel the same way as you do when you were talking about. Uh, I remember you were once compared to Aristotle, and you said, "Well, you know, I don't want to go out and be kind of mediocre." Why I do, I'd like to be up there amongst the best, and I feel the same way. I don't want to just be, you know, an average communication and relationship coach. I'd like to be one of the best people going. So I'm not oh, asking for help. Yeah, I mean, uh, nobody, nobody says I want to get married to someone I kind of like. <laughs> I mean, I guess people do, but you know, you want to get married to the love of your life, and. Um, I would suggest that the other thing, of course, you can do is with the you know permission of the people you may do coaching with, you might ask them if uh, if it stays anonymous, uh, if you can uh, do if you can record sessions and publish them, and that way people can see the style of coaching and the style of engagement and how you work, and that's a demonstration, right? Um, you, your testimonials are great, but people people really can't verify how you work. I mean, you could have made up these testimonials; it could be your dog. I'm not saying you have, but it could be, right? And so I would suggest uh, if you can get permission from people you want to work with um, uh, and then record, you can always put their voice through an anonymizer or something like that so that you know, he sounds like you're counseling Daleks or something. But um, give, give people a taste of how you work. I think that's, uh, that's really important. Okay, great. I'll get on that. Thanks very much for your yeah, or, advice. Or, we'll sorry, you or even, if it's a, even if it's a transcript, you can edit the transcript and so on. And then you could read the transcript with a friend. Uh, that way, it's not the person's voice is not identifiable even. Uh, so uh, th that's, these, that's these are ways really in which idea. you can see it. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, best of luck. And uh, enrichyourlife.co, don't put the M on. Don't. You'll want to. Don't let that autofill. Don't push that uh, iOS button. Uh, so, yeah, enrichyourlife.co. I, I hope that it works out. And uh, all the best. Thank you very much. Speak again soon. You're welcome. All right, Josh, you're up next. Go ahead. Is this Josh Groban calling in to complain about me, saying he has no young listeners? <laughs> Sing it to me, brother. Actually, that's a really nice version. He does a really – you might want to check it. It's a really nice version of uh, Don McLean's Starry Starry Night about Vincent Van <sighs> No, no, it's not Van Gogh. I went out with a Dutch lady once who informed me it was Van <sighs> Um, I think there's an umlaut. I just want to let that loop. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Let me let me return to the caller since I'm saying focus on your listeners. So, uh, what's up, my friend? Uh, first off, let me say uh, this is my first time calling in. So let me say how much I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, I think this is really great work. And uh, I, I, as far as I know, I haven't seen anyone else doing it. So I'm, I'm glad that you're there. So yeah, um, they do have a fair amount of common sense. So that does limit my. <laughs> my competitors to people who are insane like I am, but uh, I appreciate that. 
Well, uh, I was calling in today. Uh, I wanted to talk generally about something that happened with me, I guess, a year, almost a year and a half ago now. Um, it's kind of when delving into more... Sorry, when did you start listening to the show? Oh, geez. Uh, it's been a while. Let's see. This is 2013, so probably three or four years ago. And why did it take you but so I've been a lurker. I've been a lurker on the forum for a long time. Uh, a lot of this I've kind of like, uh, that's the best way to put it. I don't know. I've kind of used advice from your, from your forums and from your, um, from your shows that I've been listening to and videos to try to come to my own conclusions on some things. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm, I'm just curious, right? So if you want to start talking about something important that happened to you a year and a half ago and you've listened to the show for three years, my first question is why wait Why wait a year and a half? And it's not a criticism. I'm, I mean, it could be fantastically great reasons. It's just I'd like to know what they are. Well, to be completely honest, I, I mean, it, it did occur to me and I just kind of put it off and said I'll do it next week and then I put it off again and I'll do it, you know, you know what I mean? So, next, so wait, wait, wait. You, you mean you held on to next week for a year and a half? Is, is, does this have anything to do well, with procrastination as a topic as a whole? I'm just, I'm just curious. It does. Yes, I'm notorious for being bad about procrastinating, but uh, I did post on the forums about it, and I got some replies. Um, but since I posted it on the forums, the whole story is there. So that was actually going to be my next question to you. Since, since the story is up on the forum board, do you want me to tell you the story, or would you rather read it? Uh, which way would you uh, more? Can concise? you? Um, can you give me a link in Skype or, or tell me what to uh, I what can. To look for? I have it open right here. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Uh, no, part of, part of the reason I haven't called in over the last year is because other things have come up personally that have kind of distracted me from this. So it's and it uh, mostly started at the beginning of this year, but I'm sure we'll get into that later. So that's not shorthand now, I think. All right. So, dear Steph, uh, I was born a female poodle. I have since had a sex change and become a bisexual parakeet. Oh, sorry, sorry, I got the wrong link. Mike, will you stop posting stuff on the message board? It's confusing for people. Yeah, that's Mike. Sorry, that's uh, a little confusing. Okay, and now now you know what happens is I make some ridiculous joke and it's going to be something completely serious. I just want everyone to know that I stepped into this landmine completely willingly <laughs> to make a joke about bisexual budgery guys because we all have our demographic that we're trying to reach. I know I'm trying to reach them. Anyway, okay, hey guys, I suspect I know where this conversation will go, writes the listener. But I have a couple of questions that I appreciate some level-headed opinions on. If I can't get any level-headed opinions, I'm going to go talk to Steph <laughs> as a last resort. Uh, I had a very emotionally trying weekend. I flew to Oahu. Oahu? Is that right? Oahu, yes. Oahu, okay. To visit my girlfriend last weekend. Yeah. And spent the week visiting both her and her family. I visited a beach with the whole family, had her first date. Hmm? You had your first date with yeah, your girlfriend we... you went to visit? Yeah, uh, go ahead and finish reading. I'll tell you. All right. Helped around the house doing more housework than you do even at home. Uh, After a week, though, we made a mistake. After about a week of being together, we've been talking openly for months. Things became physical. Normally, this wouldn't have been an issue. (laughs) Normally, that's actually quite a positive thing for most people. But she lives at home with parents at the moment, and their main rule was specifically against anything of that nature happening at home. This isn't because they have any moral objections to us being together, but because there are young children in the house who are not ready to be around that kind of thing. So we made the mistake of breaking that rule, and we're obviously in the wrong. My problem, however, began when her parents began their form of punishment. Rather than any form of physical punishment or reasonable lecture about how what we did was wrong, they started by screaming at the top of their lungs as if in an effort to intentionally wake up all the kids in the house. Ah. 
I've, I, I suspect a rather unsubtle UPB violation <laughs> occurring. Don't traumatize the children! <laughs> right, okay. It was only then that I realized the degree to which her parents can be emotionally abusive to control her and her brothers and sisters. Some of the emotional shots that they took, I wouldn't even take against someone that I really disliked or even hated. Her mother took every low blow she could think of, calling me a bum, comparing me to her last boyfriend, and especially low blow because he had once been a friend, a friend of yours, I assume, right? And even calling their own daughter names. Their level of cruelty when they felt wronged astounded me. After trying to remain quiet and respectful while they yelled, eh, UPB violation number two, I was asked ex explicitly to agree with something that her mother said, whether I actually agreed with it or not. At that point, I was tired of being screamed at and made a meager attempt to stand up for the decision my girlfriend had made, to leave the house and talk about the situation. I guess when people had calmed down, right? Both parents acted abashed that I hadn't remained passive and agreed with their conclusion that she should shut up and do as she was told and started yelling again. Then her mother began forcing her back to her room, and instead of defending herself or her right to remove herself from the situation, she is 20 years old, she walked meekly back to her room. I was offended and felt abandoned and turned around and left the house while her father stood by yelling, that's right, you better leave. I then managed to hitchhike to the airport and called my parents to purchase a ticket home. While sitting at the airport, I spoke to her, and she told me that I overreacted for calling my parents and that she had the situation under control and that I should have had more faith in her ability to manage her parents. She then continued to defend the things her mom had said and basically left me with the choice of whether or not to work it out, but established that her family would always come first. At the time, I was offended and went so far as to break up with her on the spot. However, since then, we have spoken again and are trying to work things out. Um... For a little context, this is a girl that I care very much about and hope to get. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, this is a long time ago. This is not accurate anymore, but I'll, I'll explain it after you finish. Well, no, if it's not accurate, uh, I don't want to read stuff that doesn't doesn't uh, go ahead. But no, go ahead. I mean, it, it's, still an accurate, it's still an accurate history. It's just not, you know, the most recent history, if that makes sense. Yeah. So is there more stuff? Well... Um, since then, we're not speaking anymore. I mean, we, we stopped talking shortly after that, within like a month, kind of fell apart. So this is kind of where I'm coming from, if that makes sense. Uh, my question to you is, first, I wanted some, like, your opinion on this. Um, kind of generally speaking, if I made the decision, the right decision, you know, leaving what I did, and also kind of where to go from here, because it's been over a year, so I'm feeling, like, I mean, I feel more comfortable now after some time has passed, but I also wanted to get your opinion on um, what's a, what a good way it would be to uh, to avoid, I don't know, what's a good way to put it, to avoid meeting someone with the same issue and then also um, kind of what approach to take to weed out that mentality, if that makes sense in someone that I'm interested in. Right. Right. Well, what's your history? I'm sorry, with... are you still there? Yeah, sorry. What is your history with a discipline? How were you disciplined as a child? Uh, physical punishment, mostly. Um, both my parents were religious Actually, there's a colorful history there, but um, I was spanked as a child. Um, it wasn't excessive, I mean, but any is too much. So, I mean, it was, I mean, it wasn't like an everyday thing, but 
um, that's definitely there. And how often were you spanked? Uh, I mean, roughly. I mean, uh, that's yeah, really tough to say. Well, was yeah, it once I mean, a year, once a month? Probably not. I would probably, it was never once a week. It was never more often than once every two weeks or maybe once a month, you know? And it wasn't really regular, you know what I mean? It's kind of one of those things that you, you can never see coming. <laughs> so maybe, yeah. So maybe 25 times a year for like, what, 10 years? From like 3 to 13 or, or 2 to know, 12? Probably, or? I'd say you know, it was probably just, um, I don't know, maybe 4 or 5 to like... Uh, Twelve or so, probably. Okay, know, so really, maybe two hundred times. Comfortable giving a, you know, yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah, so maybe one hundred and fifty or two hundred times you got you got hit, right? Sure. Well, I'm not trying to tell you. I'm asking. <laughs> you. No, I, I mean, I mean, the only reason I'm saying sure is because. Um, you know, I mean, you're taking an estimate and you're compiling an average and uh, saying that, or you're asking me if it's that amount of times. I mean, I don't know that I can put a number on it. You know what I mean? But well, no, no, you can, right? Because if you say it every, estimate. if no, hang on, hang on, I'm I'm not I'm not making anything up. Here. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to right. I'm just trying to compile what you tell me, right? So if you say it was once every two right, weeks. Right then that's, you know, 25 times a year. And, you know, if that's five years, then it's 125 times, right? Right, but I'm not accurate in saying it was once every two weeks. So that's, that's my point. It's, it, was, it was never a scheduled thing. It was, it was only... No, I, I understand. Look, I understand. It's not like, oh, Sunday, every second Sunday at 10 a.m., whether you need it or not, you know, we wake you up for a spanking. Now, of course, I'm, we're, just, we're just talking about averages. I understand that. And there's no way to come to an exact number. But the reason that's important is it wasn't a thousand times and it wasn't once. It's somewhere around 100, 125, 150, maybe 90, something like that, right? Yeah. And that's probably, those are, I don't know, those are big numbers, but you have a point. I'm going to let you get to it. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to have a point. I'm trying, again, I'm, I'm trying to find some no, I mean, I would, sense I of accuracy. Right? I'm, I'm, go ahead. What did you say? I'm, I'm just trying to find some sense of accuracy. I'm not trying to make a point. I'm just trying to get a rough approximation. Because, I mean, some people call and they say, I was spanked. And I say, well, what happened? They say, well, my mom did it once and she apologized and she never did it again and whatever, whatever, right? And then other people say, well, I was, you know, I was spanked and it turns out that they were beaten with belts like twice a week, right? So it's important for me to get some sense of, of, of how often because those two things are not the same, right? I mean, neither of them are particularly great, but being hit by a belt a couple of times a week is different from your mom spanking you once and then apologizing for it, right? Right, right. Now, how did the spanking occur? Was it uh, with the hand? Was it uh, uh, was it on a bare buttocks? Was it with an implement? Uh, how did it occur? Uh, it varied. Uh, started out with the hand. Eventually, when it got too painful for my parents, with the, uh, with the hand, it turned into uh, – I'll never forget when I was a kid – my dad actually, like I had acted up at my grandmother's house once, and he actually was called at work and had to leave work and come back. So what he did was he brought me to the house, and um, he left the basement door open so that I could hear the the wood being cut downstairs while he formed the paddle. And so then that was what he used from there. 
<laughs> wow. Now, when you say you acted up at your grandparents' place, what does that mean? Did you did you like set fire to it? Did you like string up a cat? <laughs> oh no. Talking about no, I, I don't even remember now. I think I might have been messing with my little sister or something. You know. So this was a really calculated kind of sadism. At least that's how I would characterize it. Like, you, you wait here. I'm going to go down. You'll hear the blade as I put together the paddle or make the paddle that I'm going to beat you with, right? Yeah, that's kind of how it went. I'm sorry? I said, yeah, that's kind of how it went. Sorry. I didn't... I'm very sorry. I mean, that's – I'm incredibly sorry for that. Um. You know, when there is an ex a more extreme form of violence, my argument would be that that was always present in the household as a possibility. In other words, you probably always knew that your father could do that, right? Or that that was that was something yeah, that could yeah, happen. Sure. Now, was that was that beating uh, on bare skin, or was it through clothes? You're breaking up. I, mean, I heard what you said, but you broke up there towards the end. Can you hear me? Yeah. Was it uh, on bare skin that beating? Okay. It was. It, it was through clothes. It was through clothes, and was it as painful as I can imagine, or was it uh, more shocking? Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty shocking. Right, and did your mother know about this? Uh, I don't know if she did at the time, but she found out. <laughs> I mean, and what was the response? It's, it's been so long, I don't remember. It, uh, she always sided with him, you know, you shouldn't have done whatever. So. so she felt it was a good thing? Or, or something that you brought upon yourself and your dad did the right sorry, thing? Right, right. That's probably more accurate. Something you brought upon yourself, something that's uh, not ideal but necessary. Well, it's not ideal, but I mean, it was the not ideal was your behavior, not how your father handled it, right? Is that is that right, my understanding? Right. Is my understanding correct? So your father did the right thing based upon the circumstances. Uh, I yeah, I think so. I mean, there's that that point to be argued, but I don't know, you know, her mindset well enough to really say for sure. But uh, and did the beating leave marks? Oh no. Okay. All right. All right. Not physically. Either. No, no, I get psychologically, of course, right? I'm very sorry for that. I, it's, I mean, it's wretched. And, and how old were you at that time? Uh, I don't even know, to be honest with you. I'd be guessing if I told you. Well, roughly. Uh, somewhere between five and ten. Somewhere between five and ten. Wow, that's a pretty wide range. And did you um, did you uh, end up? Oh, how do I put this? Was that was that the, the was the stuff after that? I mean, that, that occurred with that. I assumed that was the worst, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that that was always what you used, yeah, it was all it was all after. Like that was the, that was the worst of it for sure. Right. And right. after I got to be 12 or 13, Mark could probably back his thoughts. Right. Okay. Do you, um, do you consider that discipline or do you consider that a beating or assault? 
sorry, could you say that one more time? Would you, did you consider that discipline or would you consider that discipline or would you consider that beating or assault? I mean, no, it's not. I don't consider that to be a valid form of discipline, no. Right, okay. And what about, um, and your mother spanked you too? Uh, I don't think so, actually. I think it was always dead. And how did your mother then um, enforce her will on you? I don't know. That's a tough question. Uh, maybe emotional arguments is the main, you know, the, the traditional guilt trip. That's kind of most of where it came from, I think. Right. And I see now, too, like where I'm living, I'm, uh, I'm living here with my mother still. And um, her mother is living right down the street. And when I spend time with the book of them, I can see that it comes out in book of them. Sometimes they have the, the emotional manipulation or they're trying to get you to do what they want you to do. You know? Right. And did your mother raise her voice? Uh, sometimes, yeah, on occasion. Um, to the, to the degree with which your girlfriends did, or not that much. Uh, probably not that much. But and not as not as you know. The thing that struck me about the my girlfriend's mother and about how she jumped to that so quickly was the main thing because. She went from completely level-headed and calling herself rational to just screaming at the top of her lungs, you know what I mean? The, so, the mom, I mean, you mean? No, I mean, yeah, her mother, yeah. Yeah. So the mother, she said, I'm rational, or she was very level-headed? No, that rational, yeah. Not irrational. Yeah. Yeah. Right, Okay. Right. I think. Too, and how would you? How would you? Uh, how would you? How sorry, sorry to interrupt. How would you current? How would you currently characterize your relationship with your parents? Uh, well, recently, um, my dad actually just walked out. So. Just left? You mean? I don't. I assume you don't mean uh, off the room while you were talking. The beginning of he this year, he. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. No, my mother, he, he just uh, said he went to file for divorce and moved back to where his family lived as, as in a different state. So, And why does he want to file for divorce? Uh, the reason he gave was that he was unhappy. Right. Now, were you ever punished as a child for um, lying or for breaking a promise? Lying, yes, for sure. Uh, breaking a promise, course, right. I don't know. So I guess what you need yeah. to do then is sit down with your dad and ask him exactly how, uh, what size a paddle you should make for him in the basement for breaking the vow to stay with your mother until death do you part. 
because he's broken a much more significant vow. He's broken a much more significant promise than you ever possibly could have done as a child. So I think it's important to ask him what his punishment should be and how, where he would like to be hit with a big piece of wood. This is what pisses me off about parents who hit and who yell, who spank, is that they end up often doing shit as adults that is far more egregious than anything their children could ever possibly have done. I mean, you acted up a little bit at your grandparents, whatever that even means, and you get hit. And now he just walked out on his wife, on the family. He's moving out of state. I mean, don't you have a say in this? Doesn't he ask if you would like him to stick around? Doesn't, don't you get a say in whether you get to have a dad around at all anymore? You know, he asked, he sat down with me and my sister multiple times and like asked us about that. And uh, we both kind of told him that he had to do what was best for him. So you, you're, you're okay with him leaving the state? I mean, I kind of, I'm torn. I feel like he, as a per, I mean, as an individual, he has to do what's right for him. But at the same time, is that, is, wait, 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 is that, is that what, is that what he taught you as a child? That you as a child have to do what's right for you? <laughs> no, no, it's not. I didn't tell okay, well, what did, no, no, hang on, hang on. What did he teach you as a child? Do what you're told. Yeah, do do what's right for the family. Do what's respectful to your elders. Do right. I don't think he taught you do what's best for you at the expense of others. I assume your mom doesn't want him to leave. I'm sorry. Did you ask me a question? Does your mom want him to leave? Uh, no, no, she definitely didn't when he left. Does he know that most people who want to get divorced, who stay together after five years, are, are actually very happy and, and are very glad that they did not get divorced? If they do the work, right? If they go to therapy, if they go to counseling, if they work it out, right? Does, does he know? Has he no. done the research? Does he know the facts about no, divorce and its aftermath? He's not one to jump to, to research, that's for sure. I, I'm, I'm sure he doesn't know that, or if he does, he doesn't care. Hmm. So would this be characterized as a sort of selfish act in that? I mean, look, whether he should stay or not, I don't know. I mean, what the hell? I don't even know your right, dad right. or your family at all. I don't know whether he should yeah, stay I mean, it, or not. It is, it is for sure a selfish decision, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of cautious to try to judge other people's decisions as being selfish, but I guess why? You know, it, it is. I have to do what? What? Why? I, mean, are I don't, you I don't necessarily. To judge? Because I don't know how I feel in their situation being judged. You know what I mean? Because I'm sorry. I, I I'm sorry. Understand. I don't. I don't. I don't understand what what that. I don't understand what <laughs> what that means. Right. So this might be entirely. This might be entirely uh, something that I have been, you know, conditioned to think, or it might be just. You know, some irrational, you know, preference of mine. But um, look, let me let me I, put it this way: you would like it. I would assume 
that you would like it. And tell me if I'm wrong. I don't want to. <clears throat> would you like it if your parents went to therapy, worked things out, and stayed together and, and were happy? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would, that would definitely be preferable to them splitting. Well, what, <clears throat> have you told them that? <sighs> no, I don't guess so. Don't be an enabler. Don't be an enabler. Don't be an enabler in the breakup of a family if it is at all avoidable. Yeah. Right? Be honest. I think the, the reason I haven't the reason I haven't mentioned it to him is because I'm I don't want to be that that person trying to like remember I I mentioned that my mom likes to do the emotional guilt trip and I don't want to be the one trying to guilt somebody into doing something that they don't want to do. You know what I mean? Wait, wait, wait. How is you being honest being manipulative? You see, you're being manipulative at the moment. <laughs> Because anytime you're not honest, anytime you're not honest with someone, you're being manipulative. That's the very definition of manipulation: is withholding information, is is providing false information for the sake of some effect. Now, I don't know why you're not telling him. A, Dad, you told me to stick by my commitments and punish me otherwise. Uh, B, you chose this woman. Uh, C, a lot of people who stay together and work it out or end up really happy. Uh, D, uh, I, I would like you guys to go to therapy and, and work it out. And, and you need to go. Look, I think everybody who, even if you're getting divorced and you're going to for sure get divorced, you all need to go to therapy, right? The, 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 the mom and dad need to go to therapy because that way you can have as amicable, amicable a divorce as possible. I think just walking away is catastrophic. It's it's just and and so to to be responsible, you know, you're you're an adult now, right? So you're a man. So he's not some, you know, deity. He's not some Old Testament Zeus style long beard deity up there when you're just some tiny little mouse, right? I mean, be be a man. Uh, and I hate to say that because I mean, it sounds like women. Be if you're a woman, I'd say, well, be a woman, be an adult. And step up and say, this is not how this family should end. This is not how this family should end with somebody just walking away. And it should not end with you guys saying, well, dad, you got to do what's best for you. That's nothing. That doesn't mean anything. How do you know that leaving is best for him? You don't know that. I don't. That, me saying that was me trying to give him the space to make the decision for himself, not trying to encourage him to do one thing or the other. I'm not sure that's how it was taken, but... Trying to give him the space to make the decision for himself? Right. <laughs> That's, what does that even mean? <laughs> I mean, to be, don't, sorry, to, you know, you don't owe no, him, you don't owe him space. Listen, you don't owe him space to make the decision for himself. You are all part of a family. You know, if you, if you and me are in a lifeboat, and you just suddenly decide to start smashing holes at the bottom, I don't move to the other end of the lifeboat and say, well, I'm giving you space to make the decision for what's best for you. <laughs> That's a beautiful analogy. <laughs> you owe him honesty in a relationship. Because if there's not honesty, there's no relationship. You understand? The only degree to which there is a relationship is the degree to which you are honest. I mean, if he was sitting there saying, you know, I never got around to trying heroin in my youth. So I think I'm going to go and try and score some horse and, you know, head up to the <laughs> horse head nebula. And you, you wouldn't say, well, you know, you got to do what's best for you, right? I'm giving you space to make the decision, right? And I'm not saying that, that getting divorced is good or bad or I don't know. I don't know. But 
But it is such a huge decision, right? I mean, it's not like your need for a dad just vanishes because you're 20, right? You're right. And, you know, if you get married and you have grandkids and he's not around in the same state, that's going to be a huge problem. You know, a significant uh, amount of science has gone into researching the effects of grandparents on children, and they're very positive in many ways. You don't get that. It's going to be awkward when you get married. If you get married, right? I mean, who's going to come and who's going to sit where? I mean, it's it's awkward. It's complicated. It's confusing. It's expensive. Now to see him, you got to fly and... Or he's got to fly and, you know, the the easy Sunday dinners, the drop-bys, the, I mean, it's all gone, right? Mm-hmm. Now, maybe you want him to go. I don't, like, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that you owe him, if you want to have a relationship with him, don't have a self-consciously pat yourself on the back, I'm giving him space, not be honest kind of pseudo thing right no I have a direct have a direct connection and tell him what you think and what you feel because if if there's this weird thing where we feel somehow that if we give our honest opinion we're controlling others you know, if, if I tell you, listen, I don't want you to move to Hawaii, that we're somehow f- banning people from moving to Hawaii. Right? It's not true. If you're my good friend and you're moving to Hawaii and I say, I really don't want you to move to Hawaii. I mean, I don't know if people interpret that like, oh my God, I can't, I can't move to Hawaii now or he's trying to make me not move to Hawaii. No, he's just being honest. I'm just being honest telling you I don't want you to move to Hawaii. I'll miss you. I don't want you to move to Hawaii. Doesn't mean you can't. Doesn't mean you. It doesn't even mean you shouldn't. I'm just telling you. I don't want. I'm being honest. I don't want you to move to Hawaii. If your mom doesn't really want your dad to leave, what is she doing about it? God, this passivity drives me nuts. Is she throwing <laughs> herself on the ground? Is she sobbing? Is she promising therapy? Is she promising? She did. <laughs> she did. Oh, for okay. A long good. Time. Good. Okay. Good. Then, yeah. then help her out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Be honest. Be honest and and find out what the hell's going on. Because you, you're saying do what's best for you, but I mean you don't know what what's going on. What's you know you're unhappy. Well, well, I don't know. Me and my sister have tried to stay out of the divorce because uh, I mean you know because I, what, I don't you think you're in I a different like, lifeboat. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we're trying to put ourselves in a different lifeboat. I don't know. Well, maybe, but right now you're not in a different lifeboat. This is a family event, right? You're all in the same lifeboat. And your dad's taking a hammer to the bottom. And he's like, okay, I'm going to take a plane to a different lifeboat, but you guys are going to end up with a broken family, right? And then what if someone gets remarried and, and, oh, my God. No, it's horrible. And and what what if your mom gets acrimonious or your dad gets acrimonious and you get law courts and 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 lawyers involved and oh my god listen They're i mean the moment the process it, of that now that's, this this divorce was initiated at the very beginning of this year so this is i mean it, it's already begun to drag on and they showed no well listen i can guarantee you then that that is i don't care how rich your parents are a significant portion of the family wealth is going to go into the pockets of lawyers 
And that, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying keep them together because you can inherit more, but this is going to significantly fuck with your inheritance, right? Mm. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that that means, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that means that, oh, they got to stay together so you get more money. But what I'm saying is that you are involved. Mm-hmm. So stepping back like you're not, I don't know. Be honest. You know, if you want them to work it out, if you don't want them to go to lawyers, if you don't want them to go blow $100,000 on legal bills, tell them. You, 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 you expressing your clear desires does not make you a dictator, right? In, in fact, you're kind of a dictator by withholding the honest, the honest truth from them, right? Like, let's, I mean, if, 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 if I was in some dating relationship and, uh, and I, you know, I said, oh, that girl's really cute. Um, and then my girlfriend said, well, you know, you can go kiss her if you want. You know, it's your choice. It's up to you, right? And then I went and go kissed her and then she broke up with me. I'd be like, well, damn, that was a stupid trap that I fell into, right? Don't, don't give me some non-honest answer and then I go and do something and then there's some huge problem. I mean, what if this has a huge, significant negative impact on your relationship with your father? What if you end up alienated or not talking or whatever, right? I'm not saying that, that you send say, well, if you go to, to do this, I'm never going to talk. I'm not saying that. But I mean, if he needs to know your honest thoughts and feelings about what's occurring. Don't have a whiplash backlash later. And you telling him what you think and feel and what you want and don't want is just called being honest. It doesn't control him at all. But you are trying to control that, you are, but you're trying to control him by withholding information, by not getting involved, by but by not being honest with him. You know, withholding information is a form of manipulation, and it is it is dishonest, and it is um, it is destructive to a relationship. You have strong thoughts and opinions about this, of course you do, because these are your parents. You know, the, the, the family is getting smashed up and it might be acrimonious. It's going to be horrendously expensive and it might go on for years, right? And as soon as they start dragging lawyers into it in any significant way, how do the lawyers make their money? We all know that, right? By provoking conflict. And most likely that's what those lawyers are, are going to do. So... Yeah, I think uh, I think it's time for a, a family sit down where everybody puts their cards on the table and stop being so nice and supportive and because that's not true. That's not honest. Now, I will compliment your ex-girlfriend's honesty. <laughs> right? She was not honest when she said I've got it under control, right? I mean, yeah. Appeasing People who are abusive, yeah, you can often get them to calm down. Sure. Absolutely. I think Neville Chamberlain tried that in the 1930s with Hitler. And look what happened, right? But at least she was honest when she said, my family will always come first. I choose abusers. Right? Screaming and and calling names. This is just abusive. It was just outright abusive. Hitting you with a paddle was abusive too. It, in, certainly up in, if your parents had done that in Canada, they would be criminals. You cannot hit with implements. Now in some U.S. – sorry, go ahead. I see the similarity, and I, I mean I get that we're both from abusive backgrounds, and um, I don't know. I guess the difference is that I've just tried to distance myself from it where she just embraced it and you know, 
I don't, I don't understand right. so how. I, I, the re- let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I did all of this, right? So you can understand why the hell I was talking about all of this when it was supposed to be about your girlfriend, right? If I was a woman, if I was a woman and I was talking to you about all of this stuff, and I was me, if I was me, and I, I and, and I was asking you all of these questions, I would not date you. I'm showing you how to ask questions to find out whether somebody is a worthwhile romantic companion or somebody who's going to be honest with you, somebody who has values, somebody who has standards, somebody who has self-knowledge, somebody who has integrity. Now, please understand, I'm not accusing you or telling you that you don't have integrity or anything. I'm not telling you anything like that. But when I ask you about how you were disciplined, you don't have any emotional connection to it. You're not particularly upset about it and you're resistant to actually calling it for what it is right you called it discipline you called it spanking you didn't say i was beaten i was hit you didn't um and you don't have any emotional connection to it it's not considered you don't consider it a horrible or nasty and you haven't talked to your parents openly about it so i know and and when i actually gave you the number count you got all kinds of like evasive and and avoidance and Right. Which means you've got a whole lot of stuff that you don't want to process. Right. Or rather that your parents don't want you to process. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And then when it came out a little later that your parents were splitting up, you were intentionally withholding your true thoughts and feelings from your family, both about the history of, of what happened to you as a child and about the current divorce. And what that tells me as a woman who might date you is that you have you you call not being honest with people a virtue that tells me everything i need to know about how you're going to be in a romantic relationship is you're going to be manipulative and you're not even going to know that you're being manipulative because you're going to call it giving people space to make their own decisions you're going to call it a virtue and you're going to call honesty with people manipulative and you're going to call dishonesty with people a virtue. That tells me everything that I need to know about how you're going to be in a romantic relationship. So what I was doing with you was asking you the kinds of questions that I will strongly urge you to ask people who you might date. You could have asked all of these questions. No, no, hang on. Let me, not that I'm averse to more ammo, right? But if you had talked to your girlfriend and you had found out that, that her parents regularly screamed at her and that she thought that was fine, that she felt she was in control of the situation and that those people who screamed at her and abused her would always come first in her life, what would you have said? I think that's tragic. I think you need therapy and I'm not going to come within a thousand miles of you with any romantic intentions. Because you know exactly, people tell you everything that you need to know. Okay, hit me with more ammo. Uh, Well, I was just going to say that the thing that really drew me to her was that we made a point of trying to be as brutally honest with each other as we could. <laughs> and there's a certain irony there, I think. When you say brutally honest, you're now making honesty a vice. You see how you do that? The moment somebody says to me, brutally honest, I know that they don't understand what honesty is. Honesty is not brutal. Have I been honest with you? Yeah. Have I been brutal? No. Or mean or destructive? I hope not. <laughs> no, I mean, if I have been, let me know. I mean, I, I don't believe I have been, but no, I you mean, know. No, I don't think you have. I think I think I've been very honest with you, and I think I've probably been more honest with you than most people, if not everyone, in your life to date. 
but I don't think there's been any brutality in it. So if you want to know how to protect yourself from situations like this, all you need to do is ask people about their childhoods and note with great detail how they respond. And that will tell you everything that you need to know about how it's going to be going forward. Because the values that people have and that they express when they're talking about their childhoods are the values that they're going to follow in their relationship with you. Your girlfriend was screamed at and abused by her parents. And the only person she criticized in that whole situation was you. You were overreacting. You were running off. You were, whatever. I can't remember the exact details. But the only person that she had anything negative to say about in that whole interaction was you. You get that's nuts, right? <laughs> yeah, I did. And her loyalties were very clear. And what that means, when she says she will put her family first, what she means is, I will be like my family. Right? What she means is that she, she also has permission to scream at people. It means she also has permission to call people's names. It means that if, God help you, you would ever have a child with that woman, not only would she expose that child to these screamy grandparents or her parents, but she would also do that same thing to the child. She's telling you incredibly clearly, my family comes first means I'm going to be like my family, particularly when I become like a, 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 when I become a mom, I'm going to be and do what my mom is and does. And you don't, I mean, you have the right to subject yourself to that abuse if you want. I think you shouldn't, but you have the right to. But you do not have the right to have a child and bring a child into that kind of abusive environment, right? I mean, you have the right to, to smoke drugs yourself in a free society. That doesn't mean you have the right to inject drugs into a baby, like hallucinogens or, or mind-altering substances, right? And so uh, I know you're 20 and you're probably not thinking all kinds of like long-term mom, parents, kids and all that kind of stuff. But you should. You should. You should start to think about that stuff. The reason being that the qualities that make for a good mother are the qualities that make for a good girlfriend. You, you, you can't have one without the other because, you know, empathy, curiosity, right. sensitivity and so on, right? And the reason why we also need people who are good moms in our lives is we all have our inner children, right? And sometimes we will act out as an inner child and we need somebody with reasonably competent parenting skills to help us just as the other person when they act out as a little child will need reasonably competent parenting skills from us. And so, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> you, you, you may not want to have children with everyone you date. But you want every woman you date to have the capacity to be a great mom because that's going to mean that she'll be a great girlfriend. And if she's out there defending abusers and only getting upset with people who leave an abusive situation, she stayed in an abusive situation, defended and exalted it, and you left. And the only person that she had problems with was you who wasn't going to sit by and put up with the abuse, right? That tells you everything you need to know and you could have found that out with a 10-minute conversation at the very beginning of things if you wanted yeah, that's what I actually called in today for was to get from you how that conversation would go. If that makes sense. And just that, see, she's not here, so I had to do it with you. But does that make sense? 
Right, right, right. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks for a great call. I hope it was uh, useful and helpful. And uh, really, really just ask people about their childhood. Ask how they were disciplined. And if they say, well, you know, I was, uh, I was hit with a bag of ferrets and I deserved it. Well, enjoy your life and your future bags of ferrets, right? Because they're telling you everything you need to know. And if they say, well, you know, I was, I was hit a lot as a child. It was absolutely horrible completely unacceptable. Uh, you know, I've gone to therapy. I've read all these books. I've talked about it with my parents. We've come to some sort of resolution or, or whatever it is, right? Then, then there's a possibility. But listen to people describe how conflicts were resolved in their childhood, right? Relationships are about successful relationships are those relationships where conflicts are successfully resolved. And in fact, people's intimacy and connection and closeness and love are enhanced through the resolution of conflicts. I have always come, become closer to my wife and to my friends when we have conflicts and work through them successfully because the conflicts will always arise and they are an opportunity for intimacy and self-knowledge and a greater connection. And so when you're asking someone about her childhood, a potential girlfriend, you're asking, what you're doing is you're saying, how were conflicts resolved when you were a child? I was yelled at, I was beaten, I was starved, I was whipped, I was hit with implements and so on. Well, you know that that person does not know how to resolve conflicts except through dominance, except through top-down, except through bullying, except through all of the either aggressive or passive-aggressive mechanisms that arise in hierarchical and aggressive relationships. They just, you know, do you speak Mandarin? No. Never exposed to it as a kid. Do you know how to negotiate successfully? Do you know how to resolve conflicts? No. Because the only way things were resolved when I was a kid was I was yelled at. Uh, I was I was hit. I was beaten. I was sent to bed without dinner. I was put in timeouts. I just ended up having to obey. Well, that person is telling you they don't know how to resolve conflicts. And all they know how to do is to manipulate and bully and submit. Well, good luck, right? That's never going to work out in any kind of mature relationship. Now, if they have said, well, this, you know, I didn't learn this stuff uh, about how to negotiate. It was terrible. Uh, I've recognized that as a deficiency and I've gone to therapy and I've read books and I've talked about things and I've really learned how to negotiate despite the fact that I was never taught that as a child. Well, okay, great. But when you're asking people about their childhoods, you're asking about their capacity to positively and productively resolve disputes in the future. And uh, if they defend being hit or yelled at or confined as children, uh, they're simply telling you they, they will never be successful at productively resolving conflicts in the future, which means that you're setting yourself up for a roller coaster of hurt. So anyway, thank you very much for your call. I think um, we are moving on to Nick. Yep, Nicholas, go ahead. Hey, Seth. Hello. Um, Really glad I get to talk to you before you talk to uh, Peter Joseph about the zeitgeist thing. Um, oh, yes. I'm relatively new to anarchism. Yeah? Um, no. Okay. No. I'm relatively new to anarchism. No, no, you're not. I, uh, no, you're not. No, 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 okay. no. I, I, oh, I understand I what you mean. You. I understand what you mean. I knew I could, I knew I could <laughs> fix you enjoying talking to me. I knew I could fix you being happy to talk to me. No, did you uh, – like when you were a kid – uh, and you played with other kids. Did you pull out a gun and tell them what year they were going to play? Uh, no. No. What did you all do? You all sat down and said, well, I'm going to do this. Ah, that sucks. We did that yesterday. How about this? And you all came to something that you wanted to do, right? Exactly. Are you, was there a central authority? Did you go to the government department of here's what you get to do after school? <laughs> are, you, no. are you new to anarchy? 
I am not. You are not at all new to anarchy. <laughs> I, I am newly acceptant of it or understanding of it. I, I could say that, right? No, because you understood it as a kid too. <laughs> you understood that you couldn't impose what you want to do on other kids, right? Again, I'm sorry to be so annoying. All I'm right. sorry to be so annoying. I apologize, but it's really important. It's, don't, it's, please don't present anarchy as something that people have anew to and have to understand. Exactly. You may be new, um, you may be new to like, the conceptual identification, but, but don't introduce anarchy like it's some freaky-ass thing that is like, whoa, okay, you've never heard of this before. I'm going to introduce you to something freaky and new. It's like, hey, you remember how it worked when you were a kid? Well – that's that worked right and you were children imagine if adults could do that as adults anyway so i just really wanted to point that out you 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 may be new to a conceptual identification of of what you've yeah. you already knew but what you're basically coming to me is saying i have a diet and you're coming to me and saying hey steph i'm new to eating no no <laughs> you're not new to eating you may be new to an an awareness of of what to eat or how to eat but you're not new to eating so you're not new to anarchy uh, and uh, but you may be new to a sort of conceptual identification of what we're all so intimately familiar with right that is exactly what i meant okay but, uh, and sorry to where be going, going but, but it's important. go ahead uh, no problem uh, in 2007 i graduated high school and the zeitgeist was actually what woke me up to the federal reserve and the fact that left versus right is still the same thing uh, statism. Soon after that, I discovered Ron Paul, became a libertarian. Soon after that, uh, Adam wait, Kokesh why, wait, uh, introduced wait, me to volunteer. Uh, hang on, hang on. Why did you move on from, from the Zeitgeist movement? Um, well, it, it basically showed me that politics, you know, I was a liberal. So it basically showed me that being a liberal or a Republican is complete bullshit. The actual problem is um, just coercion, I suppose. No, I suppose. Uh, is that what they thinking. say? Hmm? Is that what they say, that the problem uh, is coercion? Because I, 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 th I thought they thought the problem was like money or materialism or something like that. That is actually what I'm going to get. Like, I was originally going to call about um, anarcho-syndicism because apparently there's different kinds of anarchy and that makes no sense to me. But um, Yeah, I don't know that there's Peter different Joseph ways of not – yeah, I don't know how there's different ways of not stealing. <laughs> exactly. You know? I, I've um, got nine different ways of not assaulting you today. Uh, <laughs> okay, go on. <laughs> um, so you were asking how Zeitgeist made me see that. Uh, it was it was just um, the money aspect, how money shouldn't be controlled. It should be free for people to uh, use on their own terms, I guess. Right. Well, I so, think that's certainly fine. Uh, I've got some notes here. I'm trying to figure out where to where to pick out on them. I'm sorry if I've completely screwed up your call, you know, with my yes, but it's good. I got details. rid of some of the nerves. No, if it, whatever, whatever you want to chat about. I mean, if you've got an original topic you want to pursue, don't let me derail you. I mean, that's that's totally fine. <laughs> How about uh, the anarcho syndicates? I I argued against them that they are actually anarcho capitalists. They want to. Take a business, form it to where they all have equal ownership of their product, the sales, take equal responsibility, and then go out there and sell it. But they seem to think that the moment anarchy happens, some cat with a monocle, cigar, and top hat is going to force them into this wage-slave-labor concept. But there's actually nothing stopping them from finding like-minded people, putting a business together, and selling a product. Which, yeah, in that I case, mean, the, they the are degree to which people are afraid capitalists. of 
yeah, the degree to which people are afraid of giant monopoly pieces or something like that is 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 kind of alarming. Yeah, there's 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 nothing wrong. Or they can they can form a company that uh, all of the employees have equal ownership. That's that's perfectly valid. Nothing wrong with that at all. That I mean, that's possible now, if you want. Yep. Okay, so going back to the the zeitgeist thing, you, uh, Adam Kokesh, libertarianism, the Venus Project. It's to me the way I see it is it's all possible, but you cannot have the Venus Project without technology. You cannot have the technology without the free market for the incentive to make it, which is anarcho-capitalism. And um, I guess would have to transfer from what we have now to a minarchism state and then going into anarcho-capitalism. But I see it as this long line of eventually when there's no need for labor anymore because anarcho-capitalism cannot exist without labor. Would you agree with that? Anarcho-capitalism cannot exist without labor. I'm not sure. And as long as labor is needed to serve uh, – okay, so labor. Um, well, no, sorry. As long but, as sorry, labor it, is – Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. It depends what you mean by labor, right? So The need to physically if, no, work on, to no, no, sustain on, life. Hang, well, I mean, I have to load the dishwasher, but it's a lot easier than doing dishes, right? So that's a labor-saving device. Now, I guess you could get a robot that would load the dishwasher for me, right? And and certainly, I, I think people would rather not do manual labor than do manual labor. And we know that because there's all these labor-saving devices out there that people want. People would rather drive than walk. People would rather a machine clean their dishes or their laundry. I mean, you don't see a lot of people who could afford it going out to beat their clothes you know, with soap and a rock down by the river, right? So I think that people want to not do boring, stupid shit, right? Uh, that's why there are maids, right? Exactly. Who wants to clean their own toilets if you don't have to, right? Or the Roomba, right? <laughs> it goes around vacuums, right? It's a little robot. So, I mean, I could certainly, um, it seems to me pretty clear that as technology improves and increases, that there would be less and less of a need for for physical labor and you know maybe we could get giant farming robots or you know maybe we could get uh, robots that would would completely clean our house and maybe the cars would all drive themselves and maybe the cars would make themselves i don't know whatever that that's you know i i mean they're a labor saving device i don't think that there's any practical limit to the degree of labor that can be saved through through technology so i don't think that labor is necessary for uh, anarcho-capitalism to to exist or to run. I mean, if the, the degree to which we can save labor, I mean, why not keep pushing that till it's almost all gone? Yes, and then that is precisely where something like the Venus Project would come into handy. Because if... Okay, so money is labor. It's a equal trade of labor for money so that you can use that money as a neutral no, part of... No, 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 no. Money, labor no, money is not... Hang on. Money is not labor. Necessarily, money but it is represents value. Labor. No, m- money is no. It doesn't. I mean, because you can have. Uh, I mean, you can have value without without labor, right? Yes. Right. So I, I might be on a I might be on a phone call with someone, and I give them such a great idea just during our chat that they give me five percent of their company. Have I labored? Well, not really. I just gave them a great idea, right? Mm-hmm. And um, well, they're, so yeah, they're buying your idea, but yeah, I agree. But it's not, you know, it's not really labor. Like I'm not going to work for them. It's, and, you know, they may have thought the idea wasn't that great and not giving me any money. But so it could happen that you just end up with a piece of a company because you had a great idea, right? That's not really labor. And of course, that's part of my you know, problem with Wall Street. Had, somebody, 
Yeah, well, someone who inherits money has not worked for it, right? I mean, you could say, well, their parents worked for it or somebody worked for it or whatever, right? Um, but, um, of course, a lot of money that exists right now is not the result of labor, uh, uh, productive labor, but it's the result of theft, right? So, I mean, a guy who goes and buys Moving a gun around and around debt and stuff on a computer. Yeah, or a thief. A thief who comes and steals your money, he's invested labor into getting your money, but we wouldn't say it's legitimate, right, to, to him. And, and yeah, politicians put in a lot of work to get elected, but it's not like – I mean they're basically just uh, ornamental thieves, right? Yeah. So uh, money, uh, well, money to me is, is, is uh, stored value. Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily – because this, I think that sounds dangerously close to the Marxist idea of the labor theory of value, right? That the only value is labor and that's not, that's not true. Uh, the, 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 the value in a factory, the, the labor is, is really not that important. The, the value – you know, it's, it's like saying uh, about a woman that you love, uh, you, you, the most important thing about you is your liver, and you say, well, what do you mean? You say, well, without your liver, you'd be dead. <laughs> so the most important – and I don't want you to be dead. So the most important value thing about you is your liver. Well, now it's true that without the liver, she'd be dead, right? But it doesn't mean that the liver is then the most important part of her. The most important part of her, I would assume, is uh, her tits. No. <laughs> the most important part about her would be uh, you know, her integrity, her virtue, her whatever, right? I mean the, the, the stuff that you would love about her courage and, and all that honesty. And so in, in the same way, you know, the, the, the value is not guys moving around building stuff. I mean people have been doing that since caveman days, right? People, people built – that's how they built the pyramids. But they weren't a rich society, Supposedly. right? The, the re, yeah, the real value is the, um, the, the concepts, the ideas, the, the, the planning, the market research, the – you know the allocation of resources in the most efficient possible way, and uh, if you have a bunch of guys, I mean, people worked pretty hard in the Soviet Union, but they were broke as hell, starved to death, right, half the time. Uh, it, it was, you know, it, when they got rid of farm machinery, because well, they couldn't use farm machinery because they couldn't get the parts. Uh, then people had to go and collect all the food by hand, but that was a huge amount of labor. And they all starved to death, right? Or half of them did, right? Or Ten million died in the Ukrainian famine in the 1930s. Same thing happened in, uh, in China uh, in the 1940s. I think there was like another 10 million or 20 million. Same thing happened in Cambodia. Hundreds of thousands of people starved. So there was more labor being invested in the production of agriculture, but there was much less food being produced. So it was the lack of machinery, the lack of capital investment. That's what really provides the value. Farmers work a lot less hard now than they did in the 8th century, but they produce like literally 20 to 30 times more food. So it's, oh, yeah. you know, the, the value is the lack of labor and, and, or the, the uh, yeah, the, the lack of labor. And so you, can, I mean, a lot of what, what is produced in the modern world, you simply can't produce without machinery. I mean, you, I mean, I don't think a, a guy, you know, the lathe, right? You shape the, the cylinder of steel or whatever. You can't even do that without machinery. You can't have furnace. You can't have steel without you know, any significant amounts of steel without a furnace, right? And so, I mean, you, you can't just go down with your hands and scoop out oil from the ground and put it in your car. Trust me. <laughs> when I was in, in Texas, I thought that's what you did. It wasn't good at all. But it was a rental, so it was all right. But um, <laughs> uh, it's it's... 
So it's it's all the machinery, it's all the focus, it's all the concepts, it's all the investment, it's all the abstraction, it's all the capital stuff. Capital is stuff that you don't sell to the consumer, but you use to make stuff to sell to the consumer. That's the stuff that, that creates real value, not the labor. Anyway, I just want to point that out. So I would not say that money is labor. Money is value, and the value is okay. primarily conceptual. All right. Well, that helps because, uh, like I said, I'm new to this whole thing, so I'm trying to learn all the stuff. Um, but the real original reason why I called was taking the non-aggression principle and the focus of self-defense all the way to the end where you can apply it to the state and statists. Um, just completely hypothetical here. Um, mm. If a drunk man walks into the street and a car swerves out of its or out of his way to say crash into another car, the drunk man is responsible for that wreck because without his action being there, the flow of traffic would have continued normally, correct? Yes. Okay. So people let's say a wife is looking to hire a hitman to kill her husband and collect insurance money. She is Part of the reason why the hitman would kill her husband, so she is also. Oh no, she's not part, part of the of reason. The... <laughs> she is the reason. She is okay. Yeah, because yes. without being without her so, paying him, the the murder would not occur. That doesn't mean the hitman is innocent. So, it just means that she shares uh, equally in the murder. All right. So these people are enablers or actual criminals themselves. Well, right. Let's now imagine you're going to try and equate this if... to, to government employees, right? Uh no. Uh, no, sorry, my mistake. In Go ahead. General. Yes. Let's let's imagine that there is this body of force out there willing to commit crimes just so that the people involved can make more money. And when <laughs> people imagine, vote yeah. specific ways, yeah. Let's let's, let's theorize in a really ways. really abstract way. All right. Okay. <laughs> wait. Wait. I, actually, I do have experience with this. Go ahead. I think I've just created it for Please. you. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> These people are voting to initiate force onto people who don't want it. So if you have a status no, voting no, no, for no, 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 wait, 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 no, that's not what they're doing. I mean, because okay. there's two ways to describe. I want what you to doing. disagree with me on this. No, there's two ways to describe what it is that they're doing. One is the actual facts of the matter, and the other is what they genuinely believe that they're doing. Okay. Right, because. So you're saying like malice yes, like, versus oh, no, listen, so, so listen, listen, listen. Let's say, let's say that this man who wanders into traffic. Let's say that he's okay. he's not a drunk. Let's say he was given a medication that he was told would have no side effects, right? But then it turned out, for whatever reason, it did have side effects on him, made him dizzy, disoriented. Maybe he was allergic in some manner, and it was unprecedented. Never happened before. Would he still be responsible? Uh, no, not no. to the point of right. criminality. Because, because Yeah, because when you take a drink, you know it's going to have an effect on you, right? Yep. It's going to make you disoriented, dizzy, um, exhibitionistic, uh, or whatever, right? And, but, yeah, but if I you take just medicine, got done with your most recent book. Right, so, but if you, know, if you take a medicine which says don't operate heavy machinery, you go operate heavy machinery, you're responsible. But if you take an aspirin, and then it turns out to have some weird reaction that makes you feel like you've had 12 drinks – then you're not responsible because you didn't know and no one told you and there was no way to know, really. Right? Is somebody this who is was good, raised... This is actually... Yeah, is, is somebody who was raised 
in Stalinist Russia in the 1950s responsible for being a communist? I'm sorry, did you ask me a question? I did. Did somebody who was raised in Stalinist Russia in the 1950s, is that person morally responsible for being a communist? Because they had no other information given to them. Exactly. It's somebody who was uh, born in Germany like being... in 1934 and was put into the Hitler Youth and all that. Is he responsible for having uh, Nazi tendencies as a child or as a young man? No, but if that person grew up with those ideas in their head and then decided to force their ideas onto someone else, you know, at the point of a gun, say, in war or something, would we be able to act in self-defense then? Well, no, because well, I mean, he was obviously, told that, but, uh, no, 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 no. Listen, the, the Nazis had a great story as to why they needed to defend themselves. I mean, I don't want to go into all of it right now. I've done it, and you can look at it, yeah. the myths of world wars and other stuff that I've done. But the, the Nazis had a very compelling story. I'm not saying it was true, but it was compelling. The Nazis had a very compelling story as to why they needed to uh, wage war. And so this is all he would have been told, right? This is all he would have imbibed. This is all he would have been taught. And the right. same thing, of course, is true of statists, right? They, they don't believe that they're initiating the use of force. If somebody – like I think some, some California county – just banned, I think, using animal skins in, in clothes or something like that. Right? Now, the, now, the people who are in pursuit of that, they genuinely believe that using the power of the state in this instance is doing a moral good. The people who vote for the welfare state, you, you talk about getting rid of the welfare state and people are like, oh my god, people will starve. People will die. Children will die. Right? You talk about privatizing healthcare, people like sick people will die. And so they genuinely believe that they're in hot pursuit of the moral good when they are voting, when they are participating, and they consider it a virtue. Right? You don't yeah. vote. What kind of bad citizen are you? Exercising your democratic right that soldiers have died around the world to, <laughs> to give you and, and all that, right? I mean, okay. so, so they, they are in the matrix, right? That's their physics. Exactly. How about we place the blame or self-defense onto the matrix itself, like the media who knowingly, well, maybe they knowingly, uh, misinform these people to go vote status ways, which enables. Are forces. you saying the media knows too? Are you saying the media I'm is in the, on anarchism, but the media is, is in cahoots? No. With well, of course. This. I mean, of course, the media is in cahoots. Absolutely. I mean, but but they have an audience of statists that they have to talk to, right? So the the the, the government schools are continually pumping out these statist chanting, bloodthirsty zombies, right? Just as a continually churning these out, right? I mean, if the government keeps making zombies, can you really blame blame people for getting into the brain business? <laughs> Right here, here, buffet of brains, brains on a stick, uh, brains you can dip in chocolate, uh, <laughs> brain, a bowl of brains, brains on bread, <laughs> brains on toast, right? Because the zombies are there and they all want brains, and so there's a lot of companies who get into the business of delivering brains, right? Uh, to me, uh, and, and do, do you blame the zombies in charge for wanting to produce more? You understand, if you want to start getting into the blame, uh, I, I think that you will not find a place to affix it, except in one place. 
right? The media cannot present anarchism to the general population because the general population will recoil and they will stop watching that media. Then that media will go out of business because the whole point of media is to deliver eyeballs to advertisers, right? And if they can't do that, they go out of business. Yep. Right? It's like I'm opening up a, a restaurant in Zombie Town that serves lovely tofu. <laughs> well, they come and say, do you have brains? No, we've got lovely tofu. Ah. <laughs> is tofu made of brains? <laughs> no, unless you're an academic. But you have, right next door is a lovely brain buffet, you know, with squishy brain salad and, and you know, deep fried brains. And, well, we'll go there because tofu, we don't like to. Right. So, I mean, then the restaurant, the tofu goes out of business. Right. And if the media presents voluntarism to the general public, they will go out of business. You understand? Yes. Is it their fault that they don't want to put themselves out of business for no point to, to, to advocate something they consider immoral? Can you imagine, you know, <laughs> what is it? Not Ferret news, all anarchy, all the time. <laughs> A fair and balanced view of anarchy, <laughs> right? I mean, all they think is that people in balaclavas tune in to find out where the best garbage cans are to throw through a Starbucks window, right? That's all they'll see, right? So uh, is the media in cahoots? Well, I guess, but they're, they're still pandering to the zombies produced by the government system who want brains, not tofu. There's only one place that blame can be apportioned. It's you. The government? No, or the idea you. of government? No, it's it's just you. In fact, I've really, you know, unfortunately, uh, and we've been waiting for this lottery, you, you have to now be the scapegoat. I really apologize for that. It's just bad luck, bad timing. Oh man, if you'd been the next caller, you'd been in the clear. But now we found a scapegoat. No, that the no, the government can't be blamed either. I don't think. I mean, they, they, yes, they lie, and, and yeah, okay, fine. But but I would not imagine that people in the government would have any kind of clear idea of uh, of anarchism either. No, I mean, not to play too coy. The only place where blame can be affixed is in the people who have been presented with the clear and rational arguments for freedom. Those people have now a moral responsibility to either rebut the arguments or accept it. them. Well, no. To, to, you, either re, you, you can either rebut the arguments or you have to accept them or you call yourself an irrational asshole. There's the only choices. I say to you taxation is theft. Then you have to prove to me how it's not. You have to accept that it is theft and change your mind about it. Or you have to accept that you're just an irrational asshole who rejects the truth. Now, a lot of people don't want to go with column C. I mean, who wants to wake up in the morning and say, well, yes, slavery is evil, but I sure like cotton, and I don't know, I just, fuck it, right? They're slaves. Too bad. I'm an irrational asshole who rejects reason. I don't, I don't want to do that, right? And they sure as hell don't want to accept that taxation is slavery. Sorry, the taxation is theft. Because, well, same diff. Because then they have a moral responsibility. And now they, they can do something good or they can do something evil. They can pursue virtue or they can encourage vice. They don't want that. This is why people so strenuously – why do you think society is so fucking committed to talking about trivia and sports and weather and bullshit? Because bullshit doesn't give you moral responsibility because trivia does not expand your moral horizons. People are addicted to talking about nothing because they don't want moral responsibility. 
This is why everybody preens and, and cloaks themselves in the fine feathers of moral shit that nobody disagrees with. Oh, I want to help the poor. Whoa, what a moral hero. That's never been thought of before. <laughs> I'm against racism. Ooh, wow, you're just incredible. You're like the freedom fighters. I think slavery is bad. I think that hungry people should get food. I want medicine for the sick. Oh, my God, you're a moral innovator. <laughs> you're like Galileo to the solar system. It's astounding. You're just an immoral, forward, progressive, heroic paragon of virtue that blinds all who come within a light year of a scintillating virtue, right? I mean, the, the people just love that. I mean, now, of course, they would have, most of them would have been this, the assholes who attacked anyone who first brought up these ideas. But people love to say all these non-controversial things. I think we should defend our country. I think we should defend the homeland from terrorism. No, I think terrorism should flourish. <laughs> I'm going to be a, a contrarian, right? I'm for uh, education. Yeah, I, I, I want to eat hungry people <laughs> before they get too hungry to be good eating. Anyway, right? I mean, this is just this is just a nonsense. Well, and why do people talk about? It? Why don't people want to talk about philosophy? Why don't people want to talk about virtue? Why don't people want to talk about principles? Because once you get principles, you get moral responsibility, and then you have to actually actually fucking do something about the state of the world, rather than just repeating all of the one moral battles that aren't really one, but people think they're one. I think women should be equal. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> Whoa, what are you saying? I, it's like you're not even speaking English to me, man. So, but what, what does that mean? What does it mean women should be equal? I mean, nobody can even tell they should be equal in the eyes of the law. Ah, ah, okay, well, what does that mean? Uh, does that mean they should get the same prison sentences as men for the same crimes? Uh, does that mean they should be prosecuted for, say, false rape allegations? Does that mean that they should uh, pay... Uh, millions of dollars to men who they've given false paternity claims against? Uh, does that mean that um, they should never get alimony because men don't uh, in general? I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that a man has the right to walk away from fatherhood in the same way that a woman has the right to have an abortion and walk away from motherhood? I mean, what does that mean? Nobody knows, right? Because the whole point is you just make empty, self-congratulatory moral statements that mean nothing. And affect nothing so that you can avoid actually discussing principles and then actually having to take a stand that might get you in trouble, right? Everybody wants the benefits yeah, of being virtuous and nobody wants the challenges, right? Yeah, I'd say most of them don't know. No, they don't know and they, ex and they exist in a state of nature. And then you bring some reason and evidence to them and you are creating good and evil in their world. You are creating moral responsibility in their world. And most people would like to punch you in the throat rather than <laughs> accept moral <laughs> responsibility, right? Which is why the moment you start bringing up anything of any substance, what do people do? Oh, how about them, Jay? Oh, football. I saw a great MMA fight last night. Actually, for once, I can say that that's true. But um, what do they say? They, they mean, oh, don't bring that up. Let's not talk about it. Oh, religion. Oh, sex. Oh, politics. Oh, philosophy. <laughs> Let's get something else. Oh, I mean, they they literally will 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 drop a watermelon on a dog so that they have something else to talk about. They, they, <laughs> I mean, they literally will like. Oh, I accidentally ran into a wall. Uh, I need some help. Like people will actually fuck up any conversations of substance rather than 
have the possible albatross of moral responsibility hang from their neck, from their neck, right? And and so yeah, I've, I've, yeah, go ahead. I've more recently figured out that in terms of philosophy, getting people to think that the Socratic method, as I've been trying to do more of, is actually proving to be a little bit better than just hurling facts at people because they always want to come back with, well, no, that's not true because of this. Well. You come up with the answer, and I'll ask you, and you can hear how fucking ridiculous you sound. Yeah, three words. Three words is a hand grenade rolled into any relationship. What is virtue? What is virtue? I mean, this is the argument I put forward in On Truth, the tyranny of illusion. Available for free at freedominradio.com forward slash free. But what is virtue? Ask your parents. What is virtue? Remember how you punished me and rewarded me for being good and bad? Well, what is virtue? Dollars to donuts, if they ain't got UPB tucked under their arm, they're probably not going to be able to even have a bad answer to that question. What is justice? What is truth? How do we know something from true is true from something which is not true? Because remember as a kid, you got punished by teachers, parents, and priests for lying, which meant that they knew what was true and what was not true. Boy, I mean, to punish a child, you better have a pretty damn good methodology. You know, if you want to give a child a medicine, you read the label five times, Right. You've got to have FDA approval. It's got to be double-blind tested for a generation. I mean, you, you, I mean uh, SSRI is excluded. But if you want to discipline a child, if you want to hit a child, confine a child, deny food to a child, yell at a child, punish a child, you better damn well know what the hell you're doing. Punish a child for lying. Wow, you must really know the difference between truth and falsehood. Punish a child for disrespect. Well, you better sure as hell know what the objective definition of respect is, and you also better damn well know what in human action should be respected and you also better know how that child knows the difference and is morally responsible I for the difference. I had a pretty decent childhood. Good for you. That's fantastic. Good for your parents, in fact, rather than good for you. Lucky for you, good for your parents. Yeah. But the reality is that most people, when you ask them what is virtue, what is truth, they don't know. I mean, I would imagine your parents don't have a very strong methodology. Maybe they're objectivists. Maybe they have some methodology, right? Or maybe they even have a bad methodology. Like, well, I don't know. What did the Pope say? But the reality is that not one person in 10,000 can even come up with any kind of interest, let alone any kind of remotely coherent reply to the question, what is truth? What is virtue? And yet all we do as society is yell and beat and punish and incarcerate and put on parole and imprison and arrest and, and we are just laying down blood-soaked javelin thrown fire <laughs> flamethrower flickering gun to the neck moral judgments all the time and then you say to people well what is morality and they don't have a clue which means that you know i made this joke recently it wasn't even a joke about going to a a place in uh, in the south and there was a braille sign that said no guns allowed in the building you know we are blind people with machine guns with the trigger glued open, right? We just shoot wildly. We shoot randomly. We don't know what the hell we're doing, but it satisfies some primitive, ugly lust in us to recreate the punishments we experienced as children and normalize them and thus excuse our parents, preachers, and teachers. But... It's really good way to look at it. Yeah, but it's true. You I mean, go to the people who are vengeful against addicts on the war on drugs, go to the district attorneys and, uh, you know, who 
threaten people with 10 years in jail to get them to confess to 18 months and you ask them what is truth, what is virtue, they won't be able to answer you. I mean, they'll point at the law and then you'll say, well, then nothing was wrong which happened in Nazi Germany because it was all legal. Well, uh, that was bad law. Well, okay, well, what is the objective difference between good and bad law? And they how do we know? <laughs> yeah, of course, because they want to dominate and let their primitive reptile brains literally cannibalize the lives of others uh, for the sake of their own petty, empty desire for taking the shape of evil because otherwise they have no shape at all. And yet this is what it is in society. Nobody wants to ask those questions, what is virtue, what is truth? Because it is then revealed to them that they don't know but punished everyone anyway. Punished girlfriends, punished children, punished students, punished friends, and supported the punishment of billions of people around the world. Actually, yeah, had no idea. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I recently sparked a pretty big argument among some family members on Facebook. I, uh, I asked, how do we know murder is wrong? And first response, because God tells us so. Uh, right. A couple others like, oh, well, my empathy tells me that. Well, you know, these are all feelings. Your God says no. Someone else's God on this side of the world says yes. Just because he says yes, does that automatically mean that if he wants to murder you, murder you, you are now, you know, immoral for saying no? You have to base your beliefs on a truth, something that's, you know, like you said, universal. So probably yeah, right I mean, the, 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 the point of moral instruction, the point of the point of moral instruction from a, a religious standpoint has nothing to do with murder being wrong at all. The, the, the point of, of religious instruction is to create a template which excuses the rulers from the moral rules they violently inflict upon their subjects. And the template is very clear. I mean, as you're aware, I'm sure, in the Old Testament, God fucking kills everyone. Yeah. I mean, literally. In fact, doesn't he, he says don't kill, and then like in the next book. Yeah. Kills, he kills everyone. He kills babies. He kills fetuses in the womb. He kills disabled people. He kills retarded people. He kills everyone except for Noah and some unicorns and some no koala bears. <laughs> they don't go to Australia to pick them up, right? So God kills everyone and then says that virtue means not killing, which obviously means that, that God is is as evil an entity as can be conceived of, right? God, I mean, you couldn't get a more open confession. Murder is evil. Oh, uh, listen, Your Honor, who's underwater, I just killed everyone. And murder is evil. What's that saying? I am the most evil. That's not even complicated. I mean, this, that's not like Raskolnikov torturing himself through crime and punishment, revisiting the scene of the crime and hanging out with prostitutes and pedophiles. That is... Murder is evil. I just murdered almost the entire human race. Almost the entire human race. I mean, that's, I mean, Hitler couldn't dream of it. Couldn't even imagine that kind of uh, immorality. Couldn't, couldn't even remotely achieve it. I mean, he, he killed, he caused the death or started a war which resulted in the death of like 40 million out of, I don't know how many people were alive then, a billion maybe. Yeah. A tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. Right, and what 0.4 percent? I don't know, <laughs> something like that. 
I mean, God killed almost everyone and says murder is evil. Oh, look at that. Was it self-defense? No. Can't kill God. Can't even harm him. Can't find him. He was, I say, <laughs> not remember, I do. Can't find him, right? So, I, but, the, but the point of the story is nothing to do with God. The point of the story is to create a template where those in authority are never subject to the laws they inflict upon their citizens. And they, they do the opposite, and you still have to call them virtuous. Of course. Of course. What you and I do is defined in so many instances by the government as evil. Oh, you can't have fitted your own currency. Sorry, that means a lengthy jail term. Oh, you stole. You initiated force to pay for it. Doesn't matter what. Your kid's education, some charitable law. It doesn't matter. You stole. That's immoral. Oh, are you saying you went to another country and shot some people? Oh, that's – we get Interpol on that. We're going to get you delivered. No, you know, get an extradition and we're going to throw you in jail. Right? Oh, did you want information from someone and you waterboarded them or flew them off to Turkey to get – right? Well, that's evil. Right? And, and we like, oh, well, that is bad or counterfeiting, right? And the whole point of religion is to set up a template where those in authority get to hurl terrifying, violent moral commandments at everyone else and do the exact opposite and are called virtuous. That's the whole point of religion is to excuse the secular evil of the rulers and not even to excuse it but to praise it and to create the exact opposite for the subjects. Good is evil. Evil is good. And to have us never notice the difference. Speaking of virtue, um, just one, I know we're probably running a little late here. Just one thing I've been kind of mulling over uh, in my conversations with these uh, other kinds of anarchists uh, is one sentence here. Uh, Greed only exists in an attempt to insulate oneself or oneself from scarcity. Would you agree with that? Greed only exists in an attempt to insulate oneself from scarcity. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a tautology. You know, greed is the gathering of excess, and excess must the, the need to gather excess must be provoked by a fear of deficiency. But I mean, the greed can yeah. be used in so many different ways, and greed is just one of these negative words. Uh, and so, I'm always a little and bit. If you're a malevolent person. Yeah, but I mean, you don't always gather an excess because you're afraid of scarcity. Sometimes you gather an excess because you want to produce excess. Right? So if you save your money, then you're greedy for your savings. You have now saved in excess. Is that because you're afraid of deficiency? No, it's because you want to start your own business. Or you want to invest but in you some would start, whatever, right? You would start your business to insulate yourself from having to labor. You know, labor, uh, <laughs> labor you that you don't want business? to do. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you think to prepare yourself from somehow? flipping burgers. How about that one? <laughs> Do you think that you think that starting a business is somehow insulating yourself from labor? Oh, I hope you become an entrepreneur one day. I just, you know, that's my Old Testament voodoo curse. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, no, you, you know, no, you don't. I mean, look, I had, um, uh, I had uh, a great income and a great career before I started doing this show, having these conversations on a full-time basis. And uh, what am I, you know, I took a 75% pay cut. More, in fact, than when I first started. With a 75% pay cut, what was I greedy for? Yeah, well, that's because, well, yeah. Am I greedy for time with my daughter and time with my wife? Am I greedy for these conversations 
when we just started a Wednesday show, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, because there were more people that wanted to chat and more conversations that I want to have. I love these conversations. Am I greedy for them? I, am I doing this because I'm afraid of a deficiency of conversations? In the, I mean, I just I don't really know what it means. And so the word greed would have to be really, yeah, it, really it carefully. It came out defined. of I brought up the Venus, I brought up the Venus Project to one of those guys, and there, um, you know, we were already talking about oh, everyone's going to be greedy, and people are going to want to make all this stuff with their 3D printers, and you know, use up all these resources. Well, if everyone has everything they need, you know, if everyone has all the stuff they need to live without needing labor and have to worry about all this other stuff. Well, greed, to the extent that we see it today, really won't be a problem. Well, but, but there's a way to test that theory, right? Which is that uh, uh, people on welfare who live in government housing have enough to live on, right? They have, um, they have free health care. They have incredibly subsidized or free rent. They have food stamps. They have free education for their children in the form of public schools. And um, therefore, they should not um, express any, any greed, right? Yeah, but – And they live uh, – and people, listen, people, people on the welfare state in any Western country live infinitely better than 99.9999% of people – Either across the world or throughout history, right? Oh, yeah. They have access to. They have color televisions for the most part. They have microwaves. They have internet access. They have cell phones. They have access to antibiotics oh, and nice. healthcare, and right. That they live like so. According to the theory, we have a perfect laboratory. We don't have to be abstract about it. According to the theory, people who live in a welfare state where uh, things are provided uh, to them should not uh, uh, manifest greed, right? Without the constant um, you know, media saying, oh, you need to buy this or do this, because those people who work for that system, they don't live in the welfare state. They actually need to make money to survive. So they look for people who have excess money to do that. But let's assume that they had, they themselves had everything they needed and they were brought up. Oh, no, 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 wait, no, 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 no. But now the definition is changing. Right, you're moving the goalpost. So the first argument, I was saying it's your argument, but the first argument is, yeah, mental note. Do not release this till after tomorrow. <laughs> but the first argument is, if people have enough, they won't want more. Right, and then I point out an example where people have more than almost everyone throughout history has, and they still want more, and they still express greed. Right, and then you say, well, but the greed yes, is then provoked by factors. external. No, 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 no. That's not – the argument was if people have enough, they don't want more. And then I point out okay. where people have enough and they still want more. So that argument is proven false, right? Okay. So the argument needs to change in now, order now, to – Now, if you change the – but don't – you know, if you're going to change the argument, explicitly change the argument, right? Don't yeah. just move – I'm not saying you, but don't just move the goalpost and pretend that you're continuing the argument, right? So if the theory is if people don't have – if people have enough, they won't want more – then I point out where this is clearly not true. Then you say, okay, well, that argument is disproven. Right? There should be no drug dealing in welfare neighborhoods if that theory is true. Right? Because drug dealing is the greed for more, right? Greed for more money, more power, more success, whatever it is, right? More money, more weed. Sorry. Also, if people have enough they shouldn't want more means that uh, we should have no multimillionaires, right? 
Because, well, I mean, a million bucks is more than enough for people to live on if they're reasonably frugal, right? And that doesn't mean living like bad. It still means better, better than living like almost ever better than living anybody else in through history, right? So there should be no multi. So, so then you say, well, if, if people have enough, they won't want more. Well, lots of people have enough and still want more. But I mean, why the hell is Steven Spielberg still making movies? The guy's worth millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? Why the hell is Brad Pitt making a movie? The guy has more than enough for 10 generations, right? So, I mean, just every now, then what they say is that, well, we, a, a different kind of human being would want more, right? Well, that's different, right, than saying human beings, when they have enough, don't want more. That's clearly false. And it doesn't really take more than a moment's thought to realize that, right? Now, then the goalpost can be moved, but I won't allow it to be moved. Because what we have to do is say that argument is false and must be discarded okay. as not only false, but completely obviously false. False without looking anything up, right? False without learning another language. False without statistical analysis. False just by thinking for two seconds about the world, right? So that's an obviously false argument, which means that people are not being self-critical who propose it. First thing when you propose an argument, first thing you need to do is say, well, how could this be false, right? How can this be falsified? What are the problems with this argument? And if people put forward and maintain obviously false arguments, it means that they do not have the principle of self-criticism, which means everything they say is suspect. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean yes, everything they say your is arguments false. arguments better than other stuff I've heard. Yeah, it doesn't mean that everything they say is false. It just means I don't really care to listen to more because – they don't have the principle of self-criticism. They say stuff that kind of seems true or feels true, and then they just go with it. Well, I, sorry, that's, that's not responsible. I mean, when you're talking about how human society ought to be organized or how people should live or how people should get resources, you are literally talking about life and death. Because people who get things wrong about how resources should be allocated in society get hundreds of millions of people killed. Or starved, right? I mean, yeah. I'm not saying they're communists, but people who were wrong about communism got hundreds of millions of people killed in the 20th century. They are worse than Hitler in terms of the body count, right? And so if people are dealing with the life and death of hundreds of millions of people and do not have the rigor of self-criticism, the rigor of let's look for the opposing viewpoints, let's invite opposing viewpoints in as much as possible, as strongly as possible. Let's really put this theory to the test because, by God, hundreds of millions of lives hang in the balance. Well, I view those people as extremely dangerous, as like more dangerous than, than a pathogen that could wipe out significant portions of, the, of humankind because that's what they're messing with. And so if people are – like, and it's the same thing with, with global warming. Global warming, if true and if the government implements solutions, it will result in the deaths of millions of people to, to ban energy, to ban energy production, to, to ban energy transmission, to reduce energy consumption, will result in the death of millions of people. There's no doubt about that. And so you really, really have to be very sure – of global warming in order to – and you have to be very sure that the government is going to solve these problems, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you're dealing with the lives of millions of people and you're careless and you're premature and you are not skeptical and you label skeptics as deniers, 
with the Holocaust references and the denial of reality, basically labeling them insane, that is pathological. That is deeply evil because you are promoting things which are – I mean they just, they just ran a, a study on I think 85 global warming estimates for over the past 20 years or so. And all but three of them were far higher than what the actual temperatures were. That is a catastrophic failure of the model. That is a catastrophic – try that in the business world. Try that in the business world. Saying, here are sales projections. Here's what we should invest in. Here's what we should spend. Here's what we should build. And see what happens when your sales don't rise at all. There's been no global warming for 16 years. 16 years. Not anticipated. No, not every time I, the models. Sorry, go ahead. Every time, like, let's go back to the media. Every time I go on CNN's website and I post something like this, I come back a day later with 20 responses, click on it, comments been deleted. Uh, on CNN Money, on CNN Money, every time I'd post this one thing on uh, economic recovery, I would get flagged for moderation approval. Yeah, and I narrowed it down to the one word that was triggering it was uh, Keynesian. Yeah, they, they don't want someone who has the knowledge speaking there. They want people just bickering left and right. Yeah, oh yeah, now you see this. Oh, you 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 conservative retards, you libtards. You know, it's just yeah, they want it to be like a a football game, right? I cheer for my team, you cheer for your team. Right. Yeah, of course they don't want facts. I mean, no, of course not, right? Facts facts are not friends of delusion, obviously. (laughs) Mortal enemies, right? So if people say that when people have enough, they won't want more, as their way of solving the basic problem of um, having no money, of having no currency, of having things on demand, they're going against the foundations of all economic theories. The the entire system of economics is based on the fact that human desires are infinite and resources are limited. That's the basic essence of economics. All human desires are infinite and all resources are finite. If that wasn't the case, you wouldn't even need economics. Now, what what people can say is that the entire foundation of economics is complete nonsense. The entire foundation of economics is completely false. Well, that is a very big, (laughs) that is a very big statement to make. And maybe they're right. I don't think so. (laughs) But you can't just. And what about saying economics is something that needs to be changed? Well, no, but, but the foundation of economics is that human desires are infinite. You never have a computer that's fast enough, you never have, you can never get there quickly enough or cheaply enough. Right, your yeah, food can always taste better. About, sorry, yeah, the, but 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 the so the but that, no, sorry, that, but, yeah. Uh, I kind of agree with it, but mostly I don't in the sense that it would be good to be there to have as a, a reference, as in like, hey, this is how much you have left. You should probably pay attention to this. But of course, I, I, I sh- I'm not advocating forcing people into this at all. In fact, like you always say, we don't know how the future is going to be, but. No, no hang on. We're going off on a way. tangent here. Let me, let me just finish my point. So people okay. can say that the entire foundation of the discipline called economics is the opposite of the truth. But unless you actually tackle it, <clears throat> unless you actually take on that task of proving 
that the entire foundation and purpose of economics is false, then you are fundamentally a creationist who says evolution is bullshit. Don't show me the evidence. I'm not going to make any arguments against it. Evolution is and, – and in fact, you don't even mention evolution because I don't think that these people say, well, the foundation of economics is that all human desires are infinite and blah, blah, blah. But we found a way around that or we have – or we rebutted in this way. They just completely ignore it. I guess they hope maybe people don't know anything about economics. But you can't just take an entire system of thought that is pretty well established at this point and has a fair amount of credibility – I think particularly the Austrian school, you can't just take an entire human discipline and pretend it doesn't exist. That's not intellectually responsible. Now, I can say I think that the foundation of religion is false, but I will write books about it. I will have debates about it. I will make podcasts about it. I will work hard to establish that as something I can prove. Why? Because I'm not irresponsible in some very dangerous areas. I recognize that if religion falls and we don't have a system of ethics to take its place, some bad things could happen. That's the Nietzschean argument, right? That with the fall of religion comes the rise of the Superman, of the, the dangerous charismatic leader, of the right? Which is why I dismantle existing systems of religion and propose one that works. Because I try to be responsible about what I put forward. And people who make absurd claims that are counter to a moment's thought and ignore entire well-established systems of human thought are dangerous and irresponsible and can literally get millions of people killed if they get their way. I think that's psychotic. What's the saying that, uh, was it a liberal good intentions pave the road to hell? Well, I, I don't, I, I don't even give them the good intentions thing. Why, why would I even assume that they have good intentions? I mean, they, they before, either, uh, they either, no, they either believe that what they're doing is actually very important and can save or damn the world. In which case, they have every piece of responsibility in the world, in the universe, to get it right. Or they don't believe it has any particular importance and won't change anything, in which case, why are they proposing it as a solution to the world's ills? If I say I can solve the world's ills, oh, I better damn well be working as hard as I humanly can to make sure I'm not taking people off a cliff, right? And if you're not working insanely hard to make sure you're not taking people off a cliff, but you're proposing grandiose world solutions about the allocation of resources, which is the sustenance of human life, and you don't know what you're doing, or you haven't been self-critical, or you haven't examined the evidence, or you haven't done all this, you're incredibly dangerous. And I don't view people knowingly selling snake oil non solutions to critical illnesses or poisonous solutions to critical illnesses to children, while they have good intentions, they really want to cure those kids. They just have never tested their medicines. Well, the fact that they haven't tested their medicines, the fact that they haven't examined contrary viewpoints, the fact that they keep moving the goalposts means to me that they have no interest in curing the children. They only have an interest in selling the medicine, and that is evil. Very well. 
And what happens then, of course, is they say, well, with a different kind of human being, we would have a different kind of society. Right? And, and look, I'm, I'm open to that criticism too. I would say that's the foundation are, yeah. of the whole concept that they're trying to push. Yeah, of course. But that's, that's the foundation of Marxism as a whole, right? If we have a different kind of human being, then by God, we will have a different kind of society. And that's okay. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if, if human beings were snails, we wouldn't need houses. But so fucking what? <laughs> right? I mean, well, if, if we were fish, we wouldn't need scuba gear. But we're not. Now, people say to me, well, Steph, but you say that in the future, uh, we'll have much lower rates of criminality and, and blah, 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 right? Yes, I make that claim. We cannot have a free society with the people we have right now. Yeah. But I don't just make that claim. I prove it. I bring the science in. I bring the experts in. I bring the data in. And I make that case that when we can reduce or eliminate child abuse, we can reduce or eliminate evil. I don't just make that case. I don't just pretend that the entire field of psychology and neurology and so on and, and child development and the science of evil, I don't pretend that that just doesn't exist and just say, well, somehow magically we're not going to have greed. No, I trace specific human dysfunctional behaviors back to their neurological and biological and psychological origins in childhood and bring the, bring the experts on board and bring the data on board to make that case. I don't just say, well, we'll you know, once we don't have advertising, we'll have paradise. What the hell does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it is definitely in theory. I think they're, what they're just trying to do is, you know, as technology increases, jobs are going to disappear. So eventually we're going to have to address that somehow. No, no, no. Good Lord. Oh, God. <laughs> it's just not true. I, I'm Please. not, you know, we have one more caller, right? So I'm going to just re make this real brief. Oh, we're done? Okay. Yeah. So let me just end okay. up with this. The idea that jobs disappear when technology increases is just ridiculous. Do you want to go back to picking your food by hand? No, of course not. It's the fact that there are combine harvesters and grain processors and trucks mean that you can't have a job? No, but the whole thing they're doing is robotics, but yeah. I mean, eventually someone's going to have to go out there and fix it. A car them. is a robot, for God's sakes. I mean, it may not be a robot that you can program, or I guess now they are, right? But a car is a machine that reduces labor. You don't have to walk. A bicycle is a robot of you. I mean, a bicycle is a machine that reduces labor. You don't have to walk. The idea that labor eliminates jobs is ridiculous. Because if we wanted to have everyone have a job it's tomorrow, we just eliminate you know, just eliminate farm machinery. I mean, the funny thing is, is that let's just take me. Let's say I said that labor, sorry, that that technology eliminates jobs, and let's say that I had say a job on the internet. To talk about this, let's say that I say use technology to create uh, a documentary or a movement or something like that, and that was my job, and I got some form of income or some sort of capacity to have a job or to have some sort of uh, money out of that, right? Well, um, how could I then say that technology eliminates jobs when the only reason I can say that is technology has given me the job of being able to say that technology eliminates jobs? I mean, if I said technology eliminates jobs when my job only exists because of technology, i.e. the fact that there's an internet and podcasting and broadcasting and computers and microphones and all that kind of stuff. If I said that, I would reveal myself as a complete idiot. 
who, yeah, who may be verbally, I, I, may, I may be verbally, I may be verbally facile, I may be convincing, I may have lots of historical examples, but who gives a shit? Anybody with any brains would simply say, well, wait a minute, you're saying technology eliminates jobs, but you only have your job because of technology. So what are you talking about? Well, yes, but technology eliminates people from being fry cooks. Well, good. Who wants to be a fry cook? What, what, what a waste of human potential it is to be a fry cook. I hope technology does eliminate fry cookers so that people can go off and do something else. So uh, it, it, technology, yeah, it eliminates jobs. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? When we cure cancer, a whole bunch of oncologists are going to have to retrain. Boo fucking yep. who? Don't we want that? I mean, does anybody sit there and say, oh, man, I can't believe that goddamn polio vaccine. God damn it. All those people who made iron lungs, they're out of work now. They're unemployed. How do you feel about it, Alexander Sock, you selfish, life-saving bastard? You took people's livelihoods away. Doctors who treated it, nurses who treated it, people who took care of these people for their whole lives, wheelchair manufacturers, iron lung manufacturers. You bastard. And, and what if this vaccine that's come out recently can actually prevent AIDS transmissions? You bastards. I mean, these poor people at the pharmaceutical companies who are producing these cocktails of medications to control the effects of AIDS, they will be out of a job. Ah, oh, monstrous. Monstrous. I mean, can you imagine when they come up with teleporters? How many gas station attendants will be out of a job? We better hold that technology back because, you know, pumping gas is what people should be doing with their lives. Well, I don't think the Venus Project promotes holding back technology. I don't care what they promote or not because yeah, – but what, what I do mean. care about is if they say technology eliminates jobs. And oh, they no, think but that they're that's not the saying it in equation. a negative way. No, but they're saying they're technology saying eliminates jobs. No, but they're not saying the whole point. The whole point of economics is the seen and the unseen, right? Yes, yeah. technology eliminates some jobs. I mean, so when I was a kid, my mom was a secretary. Now, how many executives have secretaries these days? Not many, because they got Outlook and they got email and they got voice dictation if they wanted and all that sort of stuff, right? And they can all type. So secretariness has been eliminated. And good, good, that means that they're free to do something else which actually adds wealth to society. Go be a scientist or an artist or add something to humanity. All right. Uh, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, they don't have, doesn't have to be anything glorified. It could be anything. But now they can do something else which adds value to society because they're not, they don't need to waste their time doing this, right? Because this has now mm -hmm. become a time waster in the same way that you and I don't need to waste our time growing and picking and cleaning our own food. So saying that technology eliminates jobs is, is just retarded because it doesn't say that technology frees up people for more profitable occupations. And that's the truth. It's, it's as retarded as saying government spending creates jobs. Well, okay. Of course it does. But it's like saying I shot a guy so I've added to the wealth of the country because now the doctor has something to do. Great. <laughs> Let's make that part of our economic plan. Shoot people in the knee so they need expensive rehab.
Because look, that that way the nurse gets paid. <laughs> Stimulating the economy, right? Yeah, I mean, this is I mean, that seen and the unseen. Government spending creates jobs, and it destroys far more than it creates because you don't get to think or see of all the jobs that weren't created. Blah blah. I mean, this is this isn't even econ one hundred and one. This is just common sense, right? So the fact that people will say something as retarded as technology destroys jobs, it means to me that they don't understand anything about economics. They've not read any counter opinions. They don't. They have not processed what is contrary to their viewpoint. Right, and they won't say, "Well, the economic argument is X, Y, and Z." It's called the broken window fallacy, and, and all it takes is just run through Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. You know, it's half an afternoon. Yeah, it's not. About. It's not a big intel. Yeah, it's not a big intellectual investment to make. Nobody's asking you to go get a PhD in economics, right? But it means that they're just not processing opinions that are contrary to their own, and they're not absorbing them and trying to understand them and trying to to work with them. Right? I mean, I don't just wish things away. I try to find historical examples. I try to find rational exa- uh, uh, arguments and so on. I don't just pretend schools of thought don't exist or just wish them away. It's irresponsible and it's amateur. And this stuff is all too important, all too important to be left to irresponsible amateurs. They get people killed. Agreed. All right. Thanks, everyone, for a wonderful show. Thanks for this. Um, I guess you'll be hearing some of this. Free Adam Kokash. Free Adam Kokesh, absolutely. And uh, have yourself a great week. I'll see you guys on Wednesday. Um, I'm sorry the Joe Rogan uh, uh, show is taking a little bit of time to come out, but he uses this weird like wax cylinders to record stuff. Uh, and I think it mostly comes out as tiddlywink piano music. So it should bring Ayn Rand back from the dead for a quick dance. Anyway, have yourselves a great week. You don't know that joke if you don't know Ayn Rand. She loved her tiddlywink music. But have yourselves a great week, everyone. And uh, please remember to donate for the show, to the show, about the show, with the show, fdrurl.com forward slash donate and uh, oh yeah check out the new vid uh, at intro to libertarianism or libertarianism colon introduction please share that around i think it's going to be quite helpful for others bye bye